Before we begin, I'd like to hear what everybody did over their break. Well, I spent I spent a lot of time in a cabin in the woods with my folks. Uh, really uh, nice, Karen. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I went to the Grand Canyon with my brother and sister. Don't oh, enough about your damn family. <laughs> Didn't anybody spend the break alone, watching reruns and eating cheese doodles while an unfathomable emptiness permeated their shriveled souls? <laughs> No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, no comparison, and no further delay, my friends. We're back from our winter slumber, our little hiatus there that uh, kicked off on the 2nd of January. We're finally back here to close out the month. It was a very strange month for me, birthday-wise. I had a little birthday uh, last weekend, and of course, uh, most of the listeners probably don't know this, but it was uh, posted on the Facebook page. My dear grandmother passed away uh, about 10 days ago. So I want to thank all the folks who uh, reached out to me and uh, offered their condolences. And, of course, we'll dedicate tonight's show and, and the remainder of the season here to uh, my grandma. And it's kind of how this all came together. I really feel like I'm jumping back in very fast uh, to the show. I probably should have taken another week or so, but, you know, that's life. Uh, because... Uh, this all came together in a way because my grandmother passed away uh, a couple Sundays ago, and I was working that night for Coast to Coast, and our guest tonight was the guest that night. And it, and it reminded me of all the times when I've been doing this show and I've been in sort of this this sense of turbulence in my life where things were just sort of uh, topsy-turvy and, and difficult for me. My paths crossed with Brad Steiger, and he picked me up, man. He picked me up. It's, it's happened a couple times in the history of this show, and, and I kind of knew, I had this sense from how it all came together that Sunday night that, that uh, I needed to get in touch with Brad Steiger and have him pick me up and, and get me back on the air here and uh, rocking and rolling as we do on Banal of America Audio. So he is our guest here in the first hour, and then we're going to be joined by our mutual friend Nick Redfern later on tonight as well. So it's going to be quite the evening, and a lot of enlightening conversation, I'm sure, is to be had if you don't know who Brad Steiger is, I feel sorry for you folks. You've got to learn more about the history of this field because he's an icon and he is a living legend. And as I said the first time I talked to him, a first ballot Hall of Famer in the world of esoterica. He's the author or co-author of 181 books with over 17 million copies in print. And I'm willing to bet that those numbers may have already increased uh, since I spoke them. That's how, that's how prolific he is. And his first published article on the Unexplained, appeared in 1956. So we're approaching uh, 
the start of his 60th year in this whole field. It's amazing, just a remarkable, remarkable career, and someone I'm very proud to call a friend and uh, a return guest here to the program. So thank you for coming back, Brad. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure, Tim. I always enjoy speaking with you. We always have such a good time. And, and you know, the exchange, um, you've really honored me with that, you know, the energy exchange. Uh, I, I'm very honored that I picked you up when you're down and, and uh, you know, would that that would happen, that we could all do that for one another. And, you know, I think we can. That, that's part of why we're here. You know, that's, that's why we are here, to, to pick each other up, to help each other through this, because we're all on this journey. We are all pacing our way, sometimes losing our way, sometimes confused. And then we get these moments of revelation. We get these moments of epiphany, as you say, where suddenly it seems clearer. And that's when we really have to hold on, that we don't think, well, now I got it made, because we all have our role to play. And, you know, it's so difficult in, in assessing things. I see things now so differently than I did. I mean, you know, that's, people say, wow, okay, he's 78 now. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it, it seems so fast and so clean as an author-researcher. Something seemed so simple because I had things mapped out. I had things worked out. I had decided certain things, and they seemed to be working that way. Then I look back now at some of the things, and I say, you know, what was the true meaning of that? Did I really perceive what I was supposed to when I had that ghost experience, when I saw the UFO, when I saw all of these situations? Did I really assess it correctly? Now, I think I was just a moment of immodesty here now. <laughs> I, I, I think I was a good reporter of what? I saw, right. but I didn't put myself into it, and, and that's why in this most recent book, Sherry and I have put more of our own perceptions and energy than in any other book, because I thought, I'm a reporter. I simply report it. But you know, it was probably, oh, sooner than this, and people began to write, well, what do you think, man? You know, <laughs> What do you really think is happening? What do yeah. you really perceive? And that's when I began to have the courage to begin to put my own thoughts and, and philosophy in. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I see the uh, the new book, Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Otherworldly Beings, right? That's the one we're talking about? That's the one we're talking about. Awesome. Yeah. Folks can pick that up at Amazon or uh, all the places you can get books nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you make a good point because all these years, uh, you were, as you would say, you're a reporter. You were covering this stuff. And, and it's like the, that's like the axiom or the, the rule of thumb for the reporter. You don't put yourself in the story. Exactly. With this, with this field, with this phenomena, uh, you're forced to be a part of the story. You know, it's a very it's a very conflicted place to be. Well, you know, on, on some level, I I think that was the right approach at that time. Right. Um, in many ways, this was very new. Uh, we didn't have. Uh, uh, 
paranormal programming yeah. the way the way we have it now on television, and I think that's a double-edged sword in one way. You know, I think a lot of people are getting the incorrect ideas of what this field of research is really all about. What we're really to be assessing and taking away from things, and that uh, we've only watched a few, you know, <laughs> and the ones we've watched, unfortunately, have been people. Uh, they're experts, they're authorities, and I don't think there are any authorities in this field. We're all searching, but we have experts and authorities. They go to explore a haunting. At least there's this classic scene that always occurs where someone says, something touched me. <laughs> That's just, you know, it's like obligatory. Yeah. And that I heard that or I saw that. or And then at the end they say, well, we can't really decide. We didn't see anything. And I thought, well, what's that all about? You know, why are you releasing this then if you have no conclusions? <laughs> yeah. So uh, in a sense, you know, that's the way I was doing it. And I think back in the 50s and 60s, that was appropriate because it was all new. But then when you begin to see things, and for me, I guess it happened in the 70s when, well, 72, when I wrote Myst uh, yeah, Mysteries of Time and Space, and then Divine Fire right after that, which uh, seems like a very religious book, but it, it truly isn't. It's a, Well, it may be for some people, excuse me. Hmm. It's analyzing the revelatory experience. Because I, I was brought up in a very solid Protestant background where all revelation and all such thoughts from God, God stopped talking to us on the Isle of Patmos when he dictated to the John the Revelator the book of Revelation. Revelation stopped that. And I said, no, 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 no. I mean, if God is still there, and I believe God's there, if benevolent beings are still there, and I believe they're there, there then Revelation is continuing today. I analyzed that and put my assessment on it and actually got a, a number of... Um, I was raised a very solid evangelistic Lutheran, Norwegian Lutheran. Wow. And that was, you know, just as hard-rimmed. Well, uh, I was teaching in a Lutheran college at the time, and I actually got a number of biblical scholars at both at the seminary and uh, on the staff who contributed to the book, which I thought was great. You know, we're starting to make some inroads here. We're starting to, and then I thought, well, now let me examine the UFO field because, you know, when I, I was 11 years old when Roswell happened. Yeah. And, uh, Tim, I was so excited because I was already into science fiction. I was already, I mean, and to me, and to probably millions of others, they're here. I mean, they're <laughs> yeah. here. And now wonderful things. That's when the new age begins. That's when everything, that's when the new period of, of our evolution begins. And that's the tack I took, and I became very defensive. Anyone who said, oh, what are there to UFOs? I said, yes, yes, you know, there's this, there's that. I'm quoting all the quote-unquote experts at the time. Mm. Then in 66, I wrote um, Strangers from the Skies. That came out with perfect timing. 
It was just when everyone was talking about UFOs after the Michigan sightings. Right. Right. And it was on the bestseller list within two weeks, paperback bestseller list within two weeks, and I was off and rolling. That then gave me entree to people who probably would not have spoken to me before because I wrote this particular book about UFOs. Now, as I began really to focus in on the contactees, on landings, on sightings, and I was traveling all over the country, and I saw a certain sameness in the revelators of UFO contact. And I was becoming increasingly uneasy because they were giving me the same messages that the mediums in the spiritualist camps had given me. Hmm. This was an area I'd focused on before, right. psychical right. research. So you notice this amazing overlap. What, now, what are these, what, for, you know, just generally thumbnail, what are these messages? Sort of the ones we know classically from the contactee era, sort of like clean up the earth, don't make nuclear exactly. weapons, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Take care of your planet. Well, that's good advice. But, you know, do you come from Alpha Centauri or wherever to say, you know, take care of your planet, son? Yeah. I, I, I just could not. And this was the same thing that I heard shooting star and morning mist and all the spirit guides speaking through the mediums. That's the same advice they gave, you see. <laughs> and I'm beginning to think, now, wait, wait, wait. You know, are really having spirits coming through? And then I thought, well, are we re- is this some kind of facade that is presented for us? Is this? I have no doubt. I have no doubt that these people are having revelatory experiences of some kind. They're having mystical experiences of some kind, and that's one thing I've always tried to do, and Sherry and I try to do. We know that whatever type of experience these individuals have had, whether they thought they saw a ghost, an angel, an E.T., an elf, or a nightmarish monster, it was a life-altering experience for them. And they've never forgotten it. Some even consider it an epiphany, an illumination, but they've never forgotten whether it took place when they were a child or whether it took place a year ago or a month ago. The experience remains with them. It was a significant happening in their life. What made it significant? Because they, they were faced with an encounter that told them life is not as simple and ordered as you've been told. Life is not as structured so rigidly that you cannot have these experiences. Hmm. Because some of these experiences occurred to people who had totally denied these types of experiences before. So that's why I began to put together that this may not be from outer space, not that there isn't life on other planets, but it may not be extraterrestrial. It seems now to be 
multidimensional. It yeah. seems to be coming from other dimensions, other realities. And now we have the physicists catching up with the philosophers and saying worlds upon worlds there are. We have access to these worlds. Pick up a copy of New Scientist, and in the beginning of the article on other dimensions, you begin to read these words that say, when you had breakfast this morning, another you could have been on his way to work, his or her way to work, or could have been having this other experience. Exactly. So we have scientists now talking, physicists talking about other dimensions, other realities, and so forth. And it seems much more that we're having these kind of encounters. And the type of encounter you have depends upon what you really expect or what you've been programmed or what you've been conditioned to believe is an existence or a life or an entity other than yourself. Amazing. This is, yeah, this is exactly what I was talking about as far as the mind-blowing stuff uh, from when I heard you last time. And what it, it, it truly is uh, remarkable to me because I'm in such agreement with you about all this stuff. It seems like we're dealing with some kind of force beyond, beyond us, obviously, and that, that can't really be fit into a specific sort of category. But it's exciting right now because it feels like, you mentioned the science, it feels like maybe the science is, as you say, catching up with the philosophers, you wonder if there's a way we're ever going to unlock this or if it's always going to kind of stay one step ahead of us. You know, if, it, if it's just pushing us to keep asking questions, but there's always going to be more questions. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's exciting because we may be on the cusp of something, but we may have a breakthrough and realize we just broke through to a whole new puzzle. Yeah, you know, I... Well, let me see what I, what, what do I want to say <laughs> next. Um, okay, here, here's the thought. Here's the thought. I've yeah. never, I don't think I've ever expressed this. I've never written about it. I don't think I've ever talked about it. Well, awesome. <laughs> well, it just popped into my mind. Fantastic. I, w I was in, um, it might have been Nashville. It was a southern city. I think, I'm sure it was in Tennessee. And I was on a promotional tour. Mm -hmm. And I had been talking along these lines. And there was a call for me at the studio. Now, uh, when I was off air, of course. Mm -hmm. And the man said that he was uh, a prominent psychotherapist in, in the city. <laughs> and I thought, well, he thinks I'm crazy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he, sa he said, uh, I'd like to invite you to dinner tonight if, if you don't have any other engagements. Well, I put my hand over the receiver for a moment, and I asked the producer, I said, do you know uh, Dr. So-and-so? He says he's imminent in the city, he's prominent. And she said, oh, yes, yes. So I thought, well, I didn't have anything that night, and I thought, well, this could be interesting either way. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll join you. Now, he had listened to the program with interest, and he said that he believed uh, – Belief is one of those words that we don't normally like to use, but we'll just use it now. He, he believed in everything I was saying, but now at that time, I was pretty much extraterrestrial. They're coming from outer space. <laughs> he said, I don't see extraterrestrials involved in this. He says, it's my theory that 
evolution is responsible. He saw evolution as intelligence, an intelligence that manifested to move us toward what it knew was the eventual goal of our species. Now, I've thought about that quite a bit, especially since uh, the uh, couple Sundays ago that you referred to and, and some of the ruckus that it stirred up with people. Uh, I mean, we've just now, I think, caught up with answering the email. Oh, wow. And I thought, you know, that, okay, an intelligence that's moving us forward, what has the UFO, whatever we're talking about, whether we're talking about um, entities from other dimensions, the goal seems to be the same. We had the uh, 1897 and, and uh, right into the beginning of the 19th century, the um, great airships that moved across our nation and Australia and England and Africa. Now, we hadn't mastered heavier-than-air flight yet, but everyone's reporting these huge, they almost look like steamboats, in a sense, in yes. the sky. Now, interestingly, when it landed in Texas, they said they came from uh, a town in Iowa, a town which we live very near. I see no evidence of any uh, mad scientist in, in this small Iowa town. But when they landed in Iowa, they said they were from an inventor in Texas or Los Angeles. What did this do? This really prompted scientists to accelerate the idea that we don't have to be limited to balloons. We can create heavier-than-air flights. So if you go back and, and start to really evaluate sightings, what have they all been doing? They've all been prompting us ahead, prompting us into the future. Right. So maybe the psychiatrist had an interesting theory. Now, at the same time, the same tour, a uh, priest asked uh, if he could have lunch with me. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's going to see the error of my ways. No, he confessed that he was a member of an esoteric secret group oh, wow. of alchemists. Oh, wow. That had been since the Middle Ages moving within the Catholic Church. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I listened with rapt attention huh. as he pointed out to me all the manifestations, the secret and cloaked manifestations. And they were driven, he said, by this intelligence. And that was part of their sacred mission was to help our society move into the future. Now, in the current issue of uh, New Scientist, there's a big article about how we have carved out space with our, what should we say, innovations in science recently that leaves room for a further evolution of our species. And then I got to thinking, what have we been moving toward and then I had to think of something that I know nothing about, and that's social media 
And now we, we go to our granddaughter. One is three and one is five, and they work their little computers with wrapped in them. They're sitting there. And what can they really be understanding? Well, when we quiz them, they're obviously understanding more than we might give them credit for superficially. Hmm. Is that what we're moving toward when man begins to blend with technology? We see that now in the unfortunate heroes who come who are giving all these various mechanical body parts. We have theory after theory of how the brain could live on in another body. That was science fiction. That was Donovan's brain when I was a kid, starring Nancy Reagan, by the way. She wasn't Nancy Reagan then, but Nancy Davis. All of these things seem, if you look at it that way, and you don't have to look at it that way, but if you just take a moment, is that what we're moving toward? And is that what the evolution has been moving towards? These entities that come to us from another dimension and challenge us and move us forward, is that what they've become? Is that how they can move through these dimensions? Because they are really a technological energy. They are a technological energy that has mastered moving through dimensions. And as our, if we dare, our creators or our teachers or our prompters, that's what we are to be moving toward. Amazing. Like a cycle. Like a loop. Like a cycle. Yeah. Exactly. It's entirely possible. What What I really respect about you in a massive way is that, you know, you've written all these books and everything, and you're still pondering this a lot of people you know a lot of people after 60 years would have would have would have already come to a conclusion and and that would be there they would have put their stake in the ground on on the aliens or or whatever time travelers inner earth entities all kinds of stuff um you know but what i what i really love about you is that you're still pondering this and, and i think that's really really important for for me for the listeners for everybody out there you know, we don't know the answer to these questions, and you know, no. the secret is to ask the questions. Absolutely. The, the wonderful thing about having a spouse such as Sherry is she's had these thoughts and she's been exploring since she was a girl as I was, as I was a boy. And for example, just the other night, um, we suddenly both had an aha moment. Now, as, as you know, we're night people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we probably go to bed maybe uh, by at least by 9 in the morning. But that night or that day, <clears throat> excuse me, we both had this aha moment. We both, we've had these experiences, but we had them from different perspectives. Now let's put that perspective together. So we were still talking by noon is when I went to bed that that day. Oh wow. Because we were just seized, you know, and that that's the that's the glory of working with someone like Sherry. Who <coughs> excuse me, been oh. having a little trouble. No worries. Um to have to be able to bounce those ideas off. You know, it's it's great to know that you and some others are always there for me to shoot an email off and say, what do you think about this? But, you know, you're not right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. And neither is, neither is Nick Redfern and neither are all my other buddies, you know. And But to have Sherry 
you know, your loved one, especially right there. Now, the, the secret, of course, is you keep it explorational. You don't get into an argument. Right. And, right. and that's where we're blessed. If we have a disagreement, we sit down and say, well, now let's analyze this. You know, why am I taking this position? Why are you taking that position? But it's marvelous for airing these thoughts, keeping the brain sharp, and continuing to explore. And we both recognize that we don't have all the answers. Yeah. And, and we wouldn't want to take a long bus trip with someone who claimed he had. We, we keep exploring because we see that we're only scratching the surface. We, every once in a while, we have that aha moment, and we say, now, this is something I think we can share. But, you know, it's a, it is a process. That's why we're here, a process of exploration. I don't know if any of us will ever get the final answer. You raised that uh, a few moments ago, Tim. I don't know. But, again, what's that old saying, that the journey is more important than the goal? Well, it, it connects in a way, too, that just uh, people don't ask the question, why are we here anymore? I think maybe asking the question is why we're here. Like, it's almost cyclical in that sense. Exactly. 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 So more people need to do that, but they're all wrapped up in <laughs> social media. Now, do you think there's a lot of fear surrounding this? I mean, I've been concerned about about sort of the, the merging of man and technology, but you seem, well, I, th I think you seem resigned in a sense to the inevitability of it. And <laughs> <laughs> That's the word. Uh, we, uh, we, don't, we don't use it. We don't explore it. I mean, to me, email was enough. Uh, my my publisher insisted that I have a Facebook. That's the truth of it. <laughs> and that seems to be working out rather well. But we don't Twitter or Twitter or, or any of those things. I see – I'm a stickler. I'm old school. You know, I taught high school English. I taught college English and creative writing, literature, world literature, American literature, and I'm old school. I admit that right up front. And when I heard boasts of how computers would just increase children's creativity, just multiplex over and over, that isn't true. And we see this. Um, you know, we'll be, be talking something, and, and one of the older granddaughters if I say, hmm, now let's see, did that happen in 36 or 37? She's right there, you know. Ch -ch 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 -ch. Well, that was 36. <laughs> that was 36, Grandpa. And, okay, that's fine. It's immediately there, immediately accessible. But I remember having to research something and find something and read something and study something and then reach a conclusion. Hmm. I think I learned something from that process. I don't know if the process is the same, just pushing a button and there's the answer. Creativity has been demonstrated in numerous tests now and uh, evaluations, nationwide evaluations and assessments, that it hasn't increased creativity one bit because I think the process has been eliminated that really feeds creativity. Yeah, and it, it's the kind of thing where I'm sure this can happen online, but it's a different sort of uh, phenomenon in a way. Where if you're looking into something, sometimes that will lead you down to other roads. And if, if you slow the process down as, as the way it was back in the day, I think it leaves more opportunity for those roads to emerge. 
when they otherwise might not if you're just online doing looking into something. You know what I mean? Have you ever set out looking up a book, excuse me, a word in a dictionary? Have you ever gone right to that word? I see. I, I, I'm just as you're saying. I'm sidetracked by oh. No, what's the, what is that? I, that's a word that's unfamiliar to me. And then I so I might look up and read ten different words before I find the one that I'm looking up. Hmm. That happens in an encyclopedia. What 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 really happened at the Peloponnesian War? Well, let's look up. Uh, oh my gosh, there's you know something else under the peas that you didn't notice <laughs> yeah. before and, and there you are you know and, and i think that's that's missing you just what do you want to know click 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 there it is right it's good for trivia and that kind of thing but i don't know yeah, right. <laughs> in the long run and it, it, what concerns me too is the is it, it, it's affecting not just the the creativity but it's affecting communication in a big way People just don't know how to talk to each other anymore. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. I presume you don't text, so. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just started like a year ago. That's because I, I figure I'm going to be around, uh, you know, I'm kind of being forced into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like your your Facebook page. It's it's uh, But it's annoying, and it's really, it's disheartening in a lot of ways. But uh, as with a lot of things, you wonder if there'll be a brushback where people will sort of re-embrace uh, Going simpler on things. You hope they do. They hope they do. They hope. They Once do. the novelty of all this wears off. Yeah, and and so you know, this is just the thought I'm throwing out: is that you know whether whether we like it or not, this may be what we're evolving toward to a blend of Homo sapiens and you know General Electric or whatever. I mean that we're we're becoming. We're blending, or or maybe it's on the other hand, maybe it's to warn us not to let that happen, to keep our indomitable spirit alive, to keep our unquenchable curiosity alive, because you can make the argument, as we just kind of did, that the new technology is kind of blunting the human spirit and blunting creativity and blunt our desire to seek and to find our own definition of what reality is. And that's really what it's all about. We each have to define our own reality. Well, that that raises an interesting sort of point. I want to circle back a little bit to what we had talked about earlier where it's like these, as you said previously uh, in the uh, show we were talking about, you know, you said, and you tried. You sort of had a caveat that people need to not take offense, but when they have an experience like this, what they see is what they get, which I thought was a great uh, way of putting it. And I, I guess, as someone who's talked to just countless people who had strange experiences, I guess the question I have for you is, what questions should we be asking these people that have these revelatory experiences in order to get the best or the most information out of them regarding what happened to them? Yes, yes. Uh, let me clarify something, too. I'm glad you brought that up because Sherry afterwards uh, said, you know, what do you mean who you are and what you get? She thought I meant what you deserve. <laughs> right, right. That isn't what I meant. I meant what you're at. Let me put this, let's say, what, what you visualize 
what you believe, what you've been led to believe, and what you've developed in your own thinking to believe extraterrestrial life would look like. And I illustrated then, as I have many times, in the early days when we would go to a sighting where people claimed that they saw an entity, a euphonaut, get out of a craft. And we'd take them separately and ask them to describe what they saw, and they'd describe something very different from a prophetic person in robes, all kind of glowing to, you know, the uh, stereotypical little green man. Mm. So that's what I meant. What's your apprehension is? If you see, if you've been fed by Hollywood monster movies, seeing euphonauts coming to destroy us, to enslave us, to embattle, then you would be apprehensive. You would have a fearful image, and you would probably replicate either what you had seen in the movie or, or a combination of what you'd seen in movies. So that's what I meant by who you are is what you get. Exactly. Now, I think that, that what you ask a very good question. What should we be asking of, of our revelation or our epiphany? You have to ask, first of all, what does it mean to me? What did citing that mean to me? Did, what questions has it answered? What a pathway to the future has it opened? Is there a pragmatic application of what I saw? Or am I simply to sit and gaze at my navel? Hmm. Now, I feel that these are activating incidents. Right. Some people have them when they're five. Some people have them when they're 55. And judging from the, you know, nearly 40,000 now questionnaires that we receive, it, it happens at all ages. And we've broken it down, you know, that probably people who become spiritual in their life, it probably happens around five or six. And at that time, they may have thought they've seen Jesus or an angel or a saint depending upon their conditioning at that time. As it develops now more into what we call the modern age, then people are seeing UFO beings, or angels remain popular for centuries. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a very ex common exciting, I think, for good reason, because they may be in a angelic role. They may be in a teaching role. They may come to help. Then, of course, there's always the warning. <laughs> they, they could be coming to enslave us. I think, you know, as I say, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows. And anyone who tells you that they know, you know, excuse yourself politely and walk away. But just exploring the possibilities even when they appear, now just consider this for a moment, even in a minute when they appear demonic or negative, that could still be in a teaching role because we all have to look at as we get older that our toughest teachers, maybe even seemed a little mean at the time, right. were the teachers that taught us the most and the best and the things that we remember the longest. So sometimes having, you know, the tough cop and good cop and tough teacher, good teacher, you know, this is kind of a, 
a psychological ploy that the other dimension, especially knowing how conditioned we are by our popular culture. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's why, you know, it was so much easier, Tim. It really was in the late 50s and 60s when I began. There weren't all these programs. There hadn't been ET. There hadn't been close encounters. There hadn't been innumerable uh, television programs. There was nothing at the time. There weren't there weren't there wasn't blog talk radio in fact there wasn't ra- there wasn't radio i mean there was i mean there was radio i mean radio programs right. where we could come on and talk like this i mean time after time just before i'd go on radio show the person would snarl i'm going to make you look like a fool stagger i'm going to tear you apart stagger and all i could say is you know go for it but, <laughs> You know, I don't think I let anyone do that to me, but, you know, that, that was the threat. That really makes you relax before a program to know someone's going to try to make you look like a fool. <laughs> but, but again, if we evaluate these, you know, we see that the overall mission and exercise of these entities now, in one sense, has to be to separate us from our conditioning of popular culture. Ah, I see, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's difficult. I, I was saying to uh, to Stan Friedman recently when we talked to him around the holidays that uh, it's, it's, we're in a tough spot here from, from a sociological perspective in a way because, like you're saying, there wasn't all this media and everything and all this paranormal stuff, it's already made its first impression on people. Mm-hmm. They've already made up their minds, a lot of them, or they've, or or they have an opinion on this all, and so we're we're fighting against that tide as well. And and when you bring into the, the equation, that this whatever their first impression was, is what shapes what happens to them if they see something later, if it can, you know, maybe maybe it's maybe it, um, you know, stunts their ability to conjure this kind of thing. So who knows? It's very, uh, it's a very difficult thing because we're 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 deep into this now, you know. At least as far as I know, they were talking about ghosts for centuries, but I mean, we're really deep into sort of this new era of paranormal for the human race. I mean, you know, last hundred years or whatever. Yes, and and that's why we we have to keep asking questions. You know, it's not all tied up. We can come up and and feel moments of fleeting pride that we've come up with an explanation or a statement that seems to make sense first to you and then you share it and makes sense sense to others and that kind of picks up like a meme and and continues to grow and you feel well maybe i've helped but then you you see that um, I mean, as, soon, as soon as you have a neat theory that just seems to cover all bases then, of course, something comes up to disprove it. And I think that's part of the divine plan, too, is that, you know, we are shown just how how creative, how wonderful, and yet how faulty the human consciousness is. And we have to continue always to improve and to study and to test ourselves. I think that's that's an old-fashioned word, you know, to test yourself, yeah. to test your theory, to test your explanations. 
And that doesn't mean, you know, coming asking uh, someone who has the same general philosophy if he or she agrees. Uh, that's why you know, we we subscribe to so many publications that uh, take a totally different uh, position than we do, just to test our theory. And we know that some areas, you know, will never be, you, you will never get a crack in their ceiling, and, and perhaps that's the way it's supposed to be. But I, I just see, and we mentioned this before, how many physicists, uh, the, <coughs> excuse me, and I did take a cough drop, so if that clicks against my teeth, it's not someone sending a, a Morse code to you. So. <laughs> um, what was I going to say there? Oh, 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 yeah. The, um, we received a number of very interesting emails from physicists or scientists who recognize, as I discussed that Sunday and as we're discussing now, that there are or could be, but they say are, many dimensions. And the string theory, you know, has basically nine to ten different realities that could be existing at the same time. Hmm. And I think the, the quote that I shared from uh, Dr. Lanza, and uh, many people said they were, they were appreciative of that, and were familiar with his work, but the one that I said, you know, he, he teaches biocentrism, he calls it. Some people are working with transhumanism, and that's where you are blending and becoming, you know, man and technology. Right is that life and consciousness are fundamental to the universe. And this, I love this one. It is consciousness that creates the material universe, not the other way around. Interesting. The laws, forces, and constants of the universe appear to be fine-tuned for life implying intelligence existed prior to matter. Wow. And then this one. We carry space and time around in us, like turtles with shells. When the shell comes off space and time, we still exist. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I received a, a paper, two papers, where they're arguing consciousness or material or energy and, and wondering which I think is superior. And I guess I'm going to have to say consciousness. You know, I'm going to have to take the side of that. I mean, these are people who engage in these type of theories and thank heavens there are those who do. But, but that would, again... Uh, be my assessment that consciousness is is all, and scientists cannot explain consciousness. Right. Yeah. That's the that's 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 the big block, or one of the big blocks. Absolutely. Interestingly, gravity is another. I mean, we all know if we drop something, it falls. But why? I mean, what is gravity, and and what holds the various uh, planets and stars together? Well, it's remarkable that we think about it. Uh... I've made this point in the past, too. It's The people in Europe and everything uh, back in the day, they didn't know anything about North America until all the explorers came over here. and uh, It had been around for centuries before then with its own, with its own uh, history and cultures and peoples. Mm -hmm. So it, it should, it, that, I, you should, you know, not you personally, but 
you know, folks should present that to the skeptics. It's like we didn't know there was a whole continent. We didn't know there was a whole world until, uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. And and so who knows what else is out there? Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Uh, as you remember, I, I know you're familiar with my worlds before our own, mm. and mysteries of time and space, in which you know in the early '70s I was uh, making these arguments, and it's interesting to see, you know, how things keep being discovered over and over. Right. And certainly, I'm not claiming I was the first, but but it's interesting to see how many experts there are now. Uh, that that weren't around. I mean, it was a pretty lonely time in uh, in 1970 and 71 and 72 when I was writing uh, those particular books. Uh, Worlds before our own. There was a general cry on campuses and churches to have the book burned. Oh my God! I I saved a number of those clippings because I thought, you know, in 1976. They're calling for a book to be burned, but thankfully that has uh, continued to. And, 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 you know, even though it was published in, in 76, people are still picking it up. And they say, I can't believe this came before. And then they'll name all the the current um, figures in the prehistory field or the ancient astronaut field that yeah. some people call oh, yeah. it now. <laughs> Yeah, it's surprising. It's it's remarkable that uh that that's picked up such steam in recent years. But uh, mm-hmm. good in mm-hmm. a way. It's it's good that we're uh we're, we're pressing forward and asking the questions. Absolutely. Um. All right. Now we got Nick here, so let's bring him into the uh let's bring him into the mix here and bring him. Let's on. do that. Nick, are you there with us, buddy? Hey, Tim. Hey, Brad. Hi, Nick. How are you? Thank you, Nick, for joining us, man. Uh, it's, uh, oh, sure. it's a, sort of a weird segue because I've I've never really done this where we brought somebody in in the midst of uh, of a conversation, but I think it's going to be cool. So thank you for uh, coming back on the show. It's like magic. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was surprised actually to see uh, that you guys are, are teaming up here. You got a book coming out in September, uh, the Zombie Book. Yeah, yeah, we do. That's pretty exciting. It's called the zombie uh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah. What? I guess uh, we'll, we'll we'll jump right in and have you uh, tell us a little bit about it, Nick, uh, so folks okay. can find out more about this. All right. Well, it's called the zombie book, uh, subtitled Encyclopedia of the Living Dead, and um, it's uh, one that me and Brad have collaborated on, and it's uh, it's a study basically of the zombie in culture, in history in folklore, in mythology, in entertainment, pretty much all across the board and across the centuries and hopefully be considered like a definitive guide with somewhere in the region of about 220, 230 different entries in kind of like an A to Z fashion um, where people can sort of learn. And four, 430 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a hefty book. <laughs> <laughs> You can use it to fend oh. off zombies. That's how you can uh, <laughs> exactly. it. it, it can, yes, there can also be a defense. Uh, hey, we didn't think of that, Nick. We'll have to mention that. No, I never that thought one about that one. one. <laughs> Doubles up the Don't yeah, use that. <laughs> we'll use that. Yeah, it sounds good. This is the first time you guys have uh, collaborated on a book before? Yeah, no, I mean, it's oh, kind in of a little sense. bit... It's a little bit surreal for me because 
Brad was actually, when I was sort of 10 or 11, one of the first books I actually bought was Mysteries of Time and Space, or Space, was it Time and Space, Space and Time? And, um, and that was Brad's book, and I read that when I was like 11 in England, and uh, I remember it was published by Sphere Books, and it had like a pinkish purple cover, it was a paperback. And, um, and I would... And it's kind of surreal now to be writing a book with Brad. <laughs> surreal in a good way, I mean. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty amazing. I've likened uh, I've likened Nick to you, Brad, a lot of ways because uh, the, the prolific nature of, of of his writing and your writing. I guess the question I'll, I'll sort of pose it to both of you guys uh, because you've written so much. I guess where do you you know where do you pull these topics from? How do you how do you find the the wherewithal to keep putting out these books and stuff. You know what I mean? How do you how do you decide what next to write about? Where where does the inspiration come from after all these these books that you've written? Mm. Well, it, uh, I think perhaps I can answer for both of us. One book leads to another. One book has always raised topics that uh, I would say, you know, I've got to get back to that. I have to write more about that. I'm intrigued by that. Uh, is that way it happens with you a little bit, Nick? Yeah, I would say that. I think I guess the only thing I would add is that because I mean, primarily sort of interested in UFOs and cryptozoology, it's not just one issue. And so for that reason, you know, you can write a book on Bigfoot, you could do one on lake monsters. In the same way with UFOs, you could do abductions, you could do cattle mutilations, you could do crash reports, um, ancient mysteries. You know, you could do one on South America. Egypt and so on. So in other words, I think there are sort of multiple possibilities for books where they're sort of subcategories of a larger category, so you never really run short of material for that reason. Right. Now that's that's one area where I have been criticized and continue to be criticized because some people say I should just write about UFOs. Some of my readers say, stick with ghosts. I love your ghost stories. And then when Sherry and I began writing about the marvelous gift we have in animals on this planet, people say, you can't write about cats and dogs too. You've got to stay. <laughs> and, you know, I, this is something that, uh, to me, if you have an inquisitive mind, and, and if, this is a marvelous world, and there are mysteries and miracles all around us, and you know, I just can't be limited. I have uh, now Sherry and I have said often that when we're talking about paranormal and phenomena, we do believe that somehow the enigma that we call the UFO mystery is somehow linked to, uh, Nick just mentioned Bigfoot and monsters and uh, uh, ancient mysteries and ghosts and UFOs. We feel somehow the UFO holds a mysterious key to all of them, that that may be the key. But otherwise, for us, for me and for Sherry and myself, the, the world, the universe is the limit. The universe is the limit pretty amazing now how many you you're, you're at 180 books right uh, One, yeah. 181 181 yes. amazing and Nick you said it right the first time there you go <laughs> <laughs> and Nick where are you at now on this on this uh, grand total 
Oh, I'm around about the 30 mark. I, I, I have no chance of ever catching up. <laughs> uh, you're more than 30. That, that's, I know, Nick. I know, I know. That's what you're going to do. You're going to catch up with me. Well, I, I mean, as long, the way I look at it, as long as I've got the passion for it, you know, I'll keep doing it. And that's an important thing, I think, with any oh, field yes. of the arts. You have to have a passion for what you do or it just it just doesn't work. You know, the atmosphere and the... Even like the karma, you know, I, I actually, I really believe that, that if your mind's not into it, you just, the book itself isn't, just doesn't come out right. No, no. Character, and, you know, it doesn't even succeed, possibly. So. Yeah. Yeah, so you got to really, like, want to wanna yeah. do it. Um, yeah. to, to connect this to the zombie book, so uh, I, I definitely want folks to check this out, and it's available now for pre-order, so go buy it now in January. When it comes out in September, it'll just come in the mail, and you'll be surprised to have gotten it. So go do that, folks. Uh, and and I guess, Brad, you've looked at the zombie thing for a long time, and, and Nick, obviously, you, you have as well. I guess, what do you make of sort of the reemergence of, of the zombie in, in the zeitgeist? Do you think it speaks to anything uh, going on in people's minds right now? Um, well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to answer first, Nick? And well, I was just going to really say that I think certainly if you look at the world today, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's so much fascination with zombies and zombie apocalypses when in the last few years there's been a lot of talk about those very things like apocalypses and the end of the world and viruses and right. Armageddon. Right. Right. And I think it's spilled over into the zombie um, realm, if you like, and that's why TV shows and films have become so popular because it kind of it's they're not just about zombies like the old traditional Haitian zombies. This is about mm. end of the world zombies, and so I think it's just uh, right. it's really connected to this whole issue of the, there's a mindset or an undercurrent of the idea that things are bad and the world's getting worse. You know. <laughs> yes, I. I, I agree. And then let's remember that this began with Night of the Living Dead. Mm. And they were not zombies. They were the dead coming out of their graves. Now, you could say, well, that's a zombie. But think of this now. Uh, Nick touched on it, and that's what I, so I was going to say that. And so obviously we agree on that. The fascination with the apocalypse at this time. As I said, I was reared in an evangelist, evangelist, okay, evangelist background. There you go. There I go. Okay. I guess that's the uh, cough drop in my teeth. <laughs> so, <laughs> at, at any rate, what were we told? Now, we were afraid to go in cemeteries when I was a little boy, not because of ghosts, but because we were told in Sunday school and we were told in church that when the judgment came and that trumpet sounded, that dead would graze from their graves. So we thought, I don't want to be walking through the graveyard when that trumpet sounds and see all these dead people come up. So the idea that for most um, traditional Christians there is that of the dead raising from the grave. So you tie in the apocalypse, and at least subtly, you do have zombies or the dead raising. But as Nick just said, the current fad links this apocalypse to some terrible 
disease. Now we know uh, that and sometimes it's created in laboratories, sometimes it comes from outer space. But we also have in the back of our minds what are those scientists doing in the laboratory? And could there be anything worse than having a biological plague manufactured that gets out of hand and wipes out the world? So they're linking those two things together. Well, I'm looking forward to the book. I definitely, uh, I definitely want to check it out. And I'm sure you guys will be doing the rounds uh, in the fall, talking to folks and stuff like that. So we kind of we we beat, Quite we beat them all to the punch. So. Okay, you did, <laughs> you did. And uh, well, I, I know we we only got to hear for for the hour, Brad. And I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Like I said oh. in, in the intro. Uh, you know, you really uh, you, you picked me up when I need it, and, and I needed it this time, and I, I really do appreciate it. It was serendipitous. It all came together uh, in, in a way, and, and we really threw this together like in a week, so I really appreciate you <laughs> right. making it happen. So thank you well, very much, sir. you know, it's always a pleasure coming uh, on your program or being interviewed by you, and I, I hope we picked you up again tonight. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, my friend. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Thank you. Talk Good to on, you Brad. later, Tim, and talk to you later, Nick. You too, Brad. Well, Nick, since we last had you on the show, that was like in the in the summertime. Uh, what have you been up to since we last chatted? We'll, we'll we'll sort of bring everybody up to speed on what's been going on with Nick. Oh, uh, sort of um, working on a few different books, and um, had the Monster Files book out in the summer, which was um, like a, a cryptozoology book, but in a way that hadn't really been done before, where it looked at what various government agencies around the world knew about cryptozoology. And uh, that's to say sort of files on everything from the Yeti to Bigfoot to the big cat reports in the UK, um, Russian uh, weird creatures, files on them, uh, Australia. So it was really kind of like X-Files type material, but purely and simply based around unknown animals. And that one got quite a good reception, as I said, because it hadn't really been done before. And that's sort of what I always try and do with a book. You don't want to just write a book and have the reader think, well, this is just a rehash of whatever. You want to be able to give them something new. And then um, a couple of months ago, I had a, another book out with a new page called For Nobody's Eyes Only, which is a study of mainly UFO stuff, but where the the files and the, record, <coughs> excuse me, the records have vanished, like literally vanished. Um, so it's a case oh, wow. of making a case for a conspiracy based on the fact that we can prove evidence has been has been destroyed or burned or shredded um clearly demonstrating that something of significance had occurred um and obviously we've been working on the the zombie book um, with brad as well and um then i've got another book out in the summer with new page which is called close encounters of the fatal kind that'll be out in june and that's all about mysterious and suspicious deaths in ufology from researchers authors investigators missing pilots crashed aircraft all that kind of thing weird spooky that sounds spooky well yeah i was talking to uh albert rosales people haven't heard this episode yet it'll be dropping in a few weeks but uh the he has a section in there on on uh permanent abductions which is a terrifying <laughs> prospect. Uh, but apparently there are cases, obviously, you know, the Valentich case uh, yeah. is the biggest yeah. one. But th- there are cases of uh, of people being taken and, and not brought back, which is a mm-hmm. frightening prospect. Yeah, there's actually a few. I noticed, oh, go ahead. 
I was just going to say yeah, there are a few right. reports where, I mean, you, you've got like the, the Thomas Mantell case in '48 where his plane crashed and his body was recovered. But there are other cases, you know, not just a Valentich one where planes have disappeared. Um, there was one famous Kinross case from '53, and actually another one from '53 as well, where um, the plane was, or in one case the plane was vectored onto a UFO, and in another case where two UFO researchers who vanished in a plane when supposedly going to meet extraterrestrials in the desert. And, and in those two cases in 53, they completely vanished and were never seen again. I've got those cases in the, in the new book, uh, which will be out in June. And there's actually more cases than you would think of where people have sort of died in ufology under really odd and sort of sinister circumstances. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, I saw, I think you posted this on Facebook, but I'm not positive, but uh, uh, you said somewhere, it must have been on Facebook, that you're you going to move away from conspiracy. Does that ring a bell at all, something you had posted, uh, like, in the fall? Yeah. Yeah, well, what I'm doing... Well, what, what, this... what, was the, what was the thinking behind that, and what do you mean Well, well yeah, sure. Well, I'll talk about two things, basically. One is I've got the um, Close Encounter of the Fatal Book, Fatal Kind coming out this summer, which, of course, is, cons is definitively conspiracy-based. And yeah. maybe one more. But that, unless something really sort of changed big time, that'll, that'll be it. I, I've sort of failed after 30 books, probably, of, I mean, 10 of those have been, or 9 or 10 have been cryptozoology. So the remaining 20 have all been to do with government files, conspiracies, cover-ups, etc., and as I said in that mm. post, that um, I really feel that I've gone as far as I want to in terms of paranormal conspiracy stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not like a political conspiracy guy. I'm not in, really interested in right. writing about political, like 9 11 or stuff. No, no, I'm just not into that stuff. And I feel in terms of the paranormal conspiracy stuff I've written about that. I've really gone about as far as I can without sort of going over old ground and starting to repeat things. Um, so I've got a lot of other interests. For example, um, I'm doing a, another book on the men in black, and people say, well, that's a conspiracy, but this actually isn't because it's all about the sort of occult connections to the men in black and, how, and the paranormal-type cases, and, you know, nothing to do with, you know, the whole... Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones scenario. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in more getting into, you know, some doing some more occult-type research, um, uh, things like that. And I wouldn't mind sort of doing something on, like, a historical mystery. Um, not necessarily a paranormal mystery, but just, a, you know, an unsolved murder or something like that. Um, hmm. You know, and um, sort of spread out a little bit. And... Um, Again, not be, I don't feel burned out with it. It's not I'm burned out with conspiracies, and I'm I'm not saying from the perspective I'm done with it. You know, I just can't face anymore. No, it's just that I honestly feel that I'd be in danger of saying, well, now I'm going to do a book on the CIA's UFO files or the FBI's, and you know, right, 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 and and, and sort of spread yourself too thin when there's not enough new material, and I don't want to do that, and um, that's why I always sort of choose carefully the stuff I have written about in the past. Because you you know you want to keep each book fresh, and I think there's only so much political, excuse me, paranormal conspiracy stuff you can do without really starting to sort of think, well, hang on, this is a bit too familiar. You know? so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, exactly. it won't have any effect on me writing per se. You know, as it'll 
or the number of books. It'll just be, you know, just mo- like in any field of life, you know, whether it's music, if you're a band or whatever, you know, bands sometimes change over time. You know, one album's different to another. And that's, mm. that's kind of the way I look at it, is I, I want to sort of stay fresh and explore a few different areas. Right, right. No, I mean, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. because it's, it, with the challenge, too, of this, this challenge of perspective, in a sense. I mean, we, we, if you're studying sort of the historical cover-up of the UFO phenomenon, you kind of reach a nebulous period, uh, you know, maybe about 15 years ago or so, where it's, we don't learn enough about our present time until time yeah. goes by. No, that's you know what I mean? Right. So it's hard to really... It's hard to really draw a conspiracy out any larger, and, and, and so we're stuck sort of at a glass ceiling or, or quicksand, if you will, of, of, of knowledge. Uh, and and we, I mean, we know everything we could possibly know as far as like a UFO cover-up goes. I mean, there could be little details that come out and stuff like that, but, but the, the narrative has pretty much already been written. No, you're, you're right. I mean, there's only so many times and ways you can talk about Roswell, or, or like the Mantel case I mentioned earlier, or Aztec, you know, before you get to that point of it just become it's the same story, but it's somebody else's opinion on what they think of it. But it's basically there's nothing new being learned. So that's you know that again that's one of the prime reasons why I don't want to sort of just go over old ground for the sake of it. I'd, um, I mean, if I felt there was enough. I wanted to keep doing it in that field, I would keep doing it because as I said I don't feel burned out with it. But I don't, you know, I, I feel there's a responsibility when you're writing books and people are spending money and buying them that they, you have to get, make sure they've got something new. You know, whether it's a new expedition I've been on for a cryptozoology book um, mm. or it's a, a new file that surfaced that, you know, you can spread out to a, a full length book. That's great. But if you can't do it, you know, don't try and force it. Just just move on. So. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Now, what do you make of, uh, I, I, I believe we've talked about this a lot in the past, or at least uh, at some point, that, that you're of the opinion that Bigfoot is sort of paranormal. Uh, yeah. So I guess what's your take on the, on the rise of, of Bigfoot? in pop culture in the last, like, five years. Because, well, you know, you know uh, I mean, when I first started this show, nobody was talking about Bigfoot. And, well, I mean, yeah. we were all talking about Bigfoot, but nobody, <laughs> you know, he wasn't in commercials and didn't have TV shows, but Bigfoot does yeah. now. So, I mean, what do you make of that? Well, you know, it's kind of like a lot of paranormal TV and uh, books and magazines that things come in sort of, you know, rises and falls. And... um I think the current thing right now is Bigfoot is sort of in vogue and it's popular. And, you know, I do a lot of TV and I know that when one TV company and a channel has a hit on one particular subject, everybody scrambles to make their own version of it. You know, and they're usually pretty inferior. And it's kind of like Monster Quest. I thought Monster Quest was a really good show. Um, Yeah. Because one week it was like Bigfoot, the next week it was a lake monster, then it was werewolves and whatever. And 
they went out and they did real investigations. You know, and I went out, I, I did a Mothman episode from Monster Quest in Wisconsin, and we did real investigations. You know, we went out and did stuff. I can tell you, because, again, I see a lot behind the scenes, that certain ones of these shows that are made now, you know, they call a reality TV, but they're not. They basically, a lot of they fabricate stuff. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say, I'm not talking about them just recreating stuff, you know, if the camera didn't pick it up. I'm talking about fabricating stuff, lying. Mm. I can tell you there are certain shows, I'm not going to be stupid enough to name, but there are certain shows where yeah. <laughs> they, have, they deceive the viewer and footage has been shown that isn't real footage. Um, and it's made for the show. And there are other shows. I mean, the whole Bigfoot thing right now, you know, I understand that. I mean, I don't actually don't think there's anything wrong with making an entertaining TV show about Bigfoot or UFOs or anything. The problem I have is the fact that so many of the shows are just crap. You know, you can tell that what's happened yeah. is that they've been given X number of dollars for the budget and they go into one particular area of forest land, they do sort of an hour's of worth of filming, then they wait till the sun sets, and then they do the nighttime shots because they think it's atmospheric to look for Bigfoot at night. They break a few twigs and branches. Somebody says, what was that? And, and that's <laughs> the episode. Well, you know, yeah. anyone could do that. And, and the point is, they, everybody does do it because it's just lazy TV. And that's what that's what I have the problem with. I don't have any problem with, you know, Bigfoot being becoming part of popular culture and TV shows over all over the place. I just wish they'd do it with a bit of skill, talent, and in a way that makes it watchable, rather than makes it make you just think, what was just what was the point of it? You know, it's just hmm. that's the issue I have. But in terms of my views on Bigfoot, I think the idea of going out with guns or try and nets and cages for me it's not going to work because this is where i differ with a lot of you know cryptozoologists i don't actually consider myself a cryptozoologist even though i write about cryptozoology i would say i'm a 14 who has a big interest in cryptozoology which is very different but you know yeah. there are so many cases where bigfoot comes across as like paranormal or non-physical um, and, you know, we really should have a body by now. One should have been shot or hit by a car, or one body should have been found. We're asking for 100 or 50 or 10, one. one. But Bigfoot always <laughs> yeah. skillfully escapes us. And there are a lot of cases where there have been ties in with UFOs and paranormal phenomena, and that's why I think it's some sort of, you know, whether you look at it as like a spectral creature or interdimensional, I don't know, but... Running around the woods with guns has never worked. Cages have never worked, you know. And um, but really, a lot of these shows aren't about that. They're just about ratings. Um, they couldn't right, really care right. less well, what Bigfoot is. You know. The weird part, the and, and I'm sure, uh, well, possibly someone in the chat room can correct me, or uh, a, a future <laughs> listener can email me. But it seems like, especially with these new shows, uh, but it seems like the, the the concept of an interdimensional Bigfoot, the concept uh, of a spectral creature, never really gets any any play. You know, no, we, to, 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 the, to the people in the to the people in the mainstream, to the folks who watch these shows and then shut them off and go to bed or whatever, and and don't read the books and talk to folks like you and I are doing. Uh, 
it probably doesn't even cross their mind the possibility that this thing's interdimensional. So it's kind of weird that uh, they're not even being told this possibility. Well, the problem, one of the big problems is that, and again, I get this because of doing a lot of TV. You know, I'll get a call from um, like somebody working for a TV company that, um, like, a, and they want to try and sell the show to the network. Um, and they'll phone up and say, you know, are you interested in coming on this show? We're shooting a pilot. And they know nothing about Bigfoot. You know, they ask you about Bigfoot. Well, what can you tell me about Bigfoot? And yeah. they think, they've watched one or two shows, and they oh, Bigfoot's a giant ape and runs around the woods, and um, we're going to go and look for it. They don't know any of the history because they're not in the subject. They're not, you know, they're not cryptozoologists. They're not 14s. They're TV companies that one week may be making a Bigfoot series, and then the next week they're making a series on arguing housewives or whatever, you know, that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, so when, you, when you're faced with people who are good in terms of making shows but know nothing about the subject matter, that's where the problem comes in, and that's why the shows are so predictable because it's not that they refuse to think outside the box. They don't realize there is something outside the box that presents a different approach, you know. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because some some folks here are suggesting that uh, they they don't want to confuse the 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 folks you know the people watching by introducing something this radical. But I feel like there's legs to it. I, I think that there there needs no, to be more yeah. you know exploration of the gray area possibly. Yeah. I mean, my view is this: that I mean, if you investigate reports of sightings of gorillas in Africa, well. You, you investigate sightings of gorillas and they're normal reports of an animal that lives, you know, in the Congo, in communal groups, etc. But there's nothing paranormal ever occurs around gorilla sightings or chimpanzees. They don't vanish in a flash of light. You know, there aren't weird lights <laughs> flitting through the woods. But regardless of whether cryptozoologists agree with me or not on the theory, there's not a cryptozoologist out there, I guarantee, who hasn't got over the course of their career, so to speak, at least a handful of reports that are really weird, where the creature has vanished in a flash of light, or it's faded away, or the footprints have suddenly come to a halt, or it's been seen at the same time and place as UFO activity or strange lights in the sky. Now, normal animals don't react or act like that, and they don't provoke all that weird stuff. But Bigfoot does. And... For me, to ignore that body of evidence is just stupid. I just don't get it. And um, so I don't understand why nobody's ever really done a TV show. But I actually think it'd be quite, kind of interesting to have a show that sort of crossed over from, like, Monster Quest and Ghost Hunters and was a combination of the two, you know. Hmm. Exactly. There's something to be gained there uh, intellectually-wise yeah. by exploring Yeah, I mean, it's like how many, so how many more times... Yeah, it's like how many more times do we really have to sit through some show where a bunch of people run around, what was that, did you hear this, what was that? And all you get is jerky cameras and night scopes stuff, and and that, that's the episode. And then they go on to the next place, you know, and um, and it's the same again. Hmm. <laughs> I, just, I just don't get it. Right, or, or, you know, even though it's a fantastic case, I mean, how many, how many recreations are they going to make of the Rendlesham? Incident, you know. Well, that, that's Seems right. like every I new mean, series that comes along has a sh- has you know has a Rendlesham show, and 
<laughs> you're, you're, you see the same talking heads, and you're left with the same questions you, you've had since you first heard about the case. You know? Yeah, and I think, I think often it's not necessarily just the case. I mean, done properly, reality TV can be really good. When it first started, you know, it was kind of edgy and new. But what the problem is, what passes for reality t- TV today isn't what it was when it first started, and it's kind of lost its yeah. edge. And it's become lazy, and it's like, oh, yeah, we'll just get a commission to make six episodes, and if that's all we make, well, then we'll go on to the, the cookery show or whatever. And that's what's happened. It's been dumbed down, and the shows are made that quickly, and, and it's clear, you know, that no thought's gone into it, and it's, and it's not even reality. You know, it's unreality. <laughs> or non-reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It goes. It's in keeping uh, the catching up to the paranormal, as we've always sort of thought that. Uh, <laughs> that's we're why living I mean, in people, often, people often ask me. You know, you've done so many books, and you know, we see you're on this show or that show talking about ancient aliens or whatever. But you know, why haven't you got your own series? And I, I've, I've been honest. I've told people the reason I haven't got my own series is because I won't kiss ass and lie, and I won't recreate stuff for the camera. And I won't pretend we saw something if we didn't see it. And I won't be made to wear some stupid Indiana Jones type outfit, which ain't me, you know. Um, Exactly. And so what I won't do, I won't do anything that they want me to do to make what is basically a fabrication or an exaggeration of the facts. You know, I'm not going to say what was that if I didn't hear anything, you know. What I would do... I would be quite happy to make a, get involved in a series that was like really like so-called warts and all, you know, where it followed you on the investigation, and if you found stuff, great. And if you didn't, well, the angle then is they went looking, they tried, but they didn't find anything. But unfortunately, so many of these shows seem to think that, oh no, well we've we've got to, you know, you, we've got to at least have one person per episode saying what was that. Well, why, you know? Why have you got to fake it? Why can't I just tell it as it really happened? And But when I start saying, you know, what they say, what are your stipulations? Well, I won't do this, I won't do that, I won't wear this. They're like, uh, <laughs> I can see that. I can see the face going blank. You know, this this guy wants us to tell the truth. You know, and they don't want the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the weird yeah. concept. They're like, what? You actually want us to present the true picture rather than the entertainment picture? I said, yes, I want you to present the true picture, not just the entertainment angle. I mean, I understand the audience has to be entertained. That's vital. But you can actually use facts to entertain them as well. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I consider this program entertaining, and we, we don't make anything up. I mean, we, we don't, we, we, yeah. We're not afraid to be like, oh, we don't know the answer to this. So yeah, that's I right. Think people can, for some reason, are mature TV enough company, to come to that conclusion too. TV companies don't want that, though. They just want you know, yeah. it to be a mystery or they they've got to have the weird sounds in the woods or howlings or whatever um i actually know of one show where they um the the production company went out and unbeknownst to the cast they got like a big loudspeaker and they'd all they'd recorded a bunch of wolf howlings and they played them to see what the reaction was of the of the team um hmm. Well, that's, you know, that that's stupid because you're actually fabricating, again, evidence. Um, now, in this case, the, the team weren't lying because they, they weren't aware of what the crew were doing. 
Um, that, that, that's a true story. I, I know the show and everything about that. And um, but that to, that to did me. They, now was the show? Did they like reveal at the end of the show that they had set up the crew to see what they did, or or, or did they no. just like wrap it all up? No, it was. Wow. If they had done that, there would have been no story because they didn't find anything. I don't know if that was like a last-minute thing to make something out of nothing. It may not have been. It may have been pre-planned. But I do know that had that not been done, you know, the, it would have just been a pe bunch of people walking around the woods and coming across nothing, you know. And for me, if you can't, if you can't sort of go with the reality of it, if you're actually reduced to, you know, it's not dis necessarily just deceiving the research community or the cast or whatever. It's actually the people who sit down and watch it and think it's all real. You know, that, that's who I kind of feel right. sorry for. You know, I mean, it's kind of like there are UFO shows on now that you can just tell it's sort of recreated stage stuff, you know. And yeah, yeah. It, well, it's the yeah, like it, come, it comes across as forced and it comes across as not, you know, what it should be. What I, what I was thinking there as you were telling that story, the reason why I asked, because, see, that would be interesting if they did a show where, you know, it doesn't have to be every episode, but, you know, a, a, a situation where they do fabricate these sounds to see what the people think and then talk to them afterwards and say, okay, it wasn't a Bigfoot, it was this, but what were you thinking? How were you feeling? Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe we learned something somehow from that. You know, yeah, no, that's they, not you know, a bad idea. You just never know. They might be like, oh, I smell, you know, they, the mind might yeah. play tricks on them. The next thing you know, they, they smell that preconceived sulfur Bigfoot smell that they expected. But we know that they we set them up. So it's, hmm. No, that's I mean, actually that not a bad idea. And the reason it's not a bad idea, because you could have like a show that talks about people's perceptions and how the mind sort of fills in right. blank and whatever. That's fine. But when it's just done for purely to create something because nothing really happened and they've got to give the the, TV, the relevant TV network something, so they fake it. You know, it's kind of like, well, you can actually go out and really do make a good show. And if you don't find anything, you can still make it entertaining. You know, it's like you went to Loch Ness. And you didn't find the Loch Ness monster. Well, don't fake stuff. You know, make it a really entertaining, sort of fun, cool show that makes the people, you know, the 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 the, uh, the focus, where you've got somebody sort of standing on the shore at the end, sort of spent all his money, you know, five grand or whatever, coming to Scotland, he's found nothing. <laughs> yeah. that, would, that would be kind of like a good human interest angle, but they want the long neck sticking out the water, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe we could get Carl Pilkington to uh, put together a show like that. He could <laughs> there you go. give him a lot of money. Um, <laughs> now, I, I was... Uh, I raised this question to uh, my friend Vaney, uh, Jeremy Vaney. We were talking the other night and uh, mentioned I was going to bring this up to you. This is sort of an idea that, that, that's been rattling around in my head for a little bit. And that's uh, – we're going way off the course here, but forgive me. The, the question is, in, in so much literature and uh, conjecture about the paranormal, we oftentimes sort of uh, ascribe this, this uh, human – element to it where it likes to play tricks that it's sort of a trickster element and I, I just wonder if we're making a mistake humanizing the paranormal by you know trying to fit it into a into you know that, it, that it's like us that it, that it wants to fool people when maybe it might be something more akin to like a natural phenomenon not in, not in a sinister way like it's Venus but a natural phenomenon where you know a certain 
rise in electromagnetic energy allows your mind to perceive other things. Uh, it's not necessarily that it's trying to trick you. It's just that the window is only so big. But I guess I'm really rambling here, but the, the point, I guess, of the question is, do you think maybe we need to step back and, and, and avoid humanizing the paranormal uh, as we look at it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of my view. When I was a kid, you know, I, it was all sort of black and white, you know, aliens, UFOs were aliens, and Bigfoot was this, and the Loch Ness Monster was that. And the more you look into it, it's kind of like Brad said, that um, there seems to be sort of some unifying things and themes between a lot of these phenomena. For example, you can sort of clearly look at some of the messages from the so-called Space Brothers in the 50s, and... You know, people talk about the sort of long-haired space brothers in the desert, but some of the encounters, the so-called space brother contactee reports, occurred where the people would receive the messages in their minds. Um, some of them even used Ouija boards. George Hunt Williamson used Ouija boards to contact aliens. And so you can find parallels between the messages from the space brothers and messages coming through Ouija boards and through, you know, supernatural means. And I think there's something to be said of the idea that maybe all these phenomena are interconnected and that in some fashion that our beliefs and perceptions sort of mould the way the phenomena appears. And maybe, mm. you know, when you talk about energies, possibly whatever these energies, maybe even intelligent energies, they pick up on our subconscious beliefs and then, you know, one person who believes in Buddha, it's going to appear as Buddha. Somebody else is obsessed with the Space Brothers, it's going to be a human-looking alien with long blonde hair and a gleaming white robe, you know. But the big question is, why are these things appearing? What's the point of it? You know, is it to sort of teach us, trick us? But I think you make a good point when you talk about humanizing it versus dehumanizing it. We always think, you know, people sometimes ask me, do I think the aliens are good or bad? You know, well, that that sort of suggests you've made your mind up that there are aliens and they're not something even weirder from some other realm of existence. And saying they're good or bad, well, people aren't good or bad. You know, we all have the ability to be good or bad. Um, hmm. So I don't think it's as simple as saying you know, people people want it black and white because it's easy to understand. But I think the problem is when you're dealing with something that is so literally alien, not necessarily extraterrestrial, but literally alien, then how can you even begin to put like a, a human angle on it? You know, we, we try to, as I said, to try and make it easy to understand it. But really, if you think about trying to humanize a creature from another world, you know, trying to humanize, it's like trying to humanize a lobster or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's like people who... And it ver they very may they very well may be doing this, but it's like people who presume, you know, that their pets are, are on a human level, you know, or it's like, oh, my cat loves to hide from me, when it's like the cat may have no idea that it's hiding from you, so who knows? Yeah, and, and I think I think there's sort of like a, a a fine line because I mean, obviously, you know, animals are intelligent and they they're playful and you know they. They love their owners and so on. So there is that connection there. But when we're talking about something that's really alien to us, definitively alien, and you're trying to understand the motivations and why they appear and why certain people get the experiences and others don't, and, you know, I, I think we're struggling as much as people were 
500 years ago when they were trying to, you know, look at hauntings and goblins or whatever, or 2,000 years ago with demons, you know, and gin. It's, I think a lot right. of this is all the same phenomena or phenomenon, um, but in, in different formats um, over the years. But I'll be the first to admit, I don't really have a, a good basis of sort of uh, belief as to what it wants or what it needs from us. You know, maybe it's a bit of both. I, I just don't know. I mean, you could sort of speculate that it's bored, you know, and it plays games with us or it's trying to teach us or deceive us or, you know, elevate us. Who knows? Maybe it's a combination of a it bunch of It could be anything, stuff. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, this connects back to the, the conversation just now with Brad, too. I, was, I, I put him over. I'll put you over in the same way. It's refreshing. It's why I like both of you guys, that you don't, you haven't put your stake in the ground on one thing and, and you know, just trumpeted that as your, as well, you know, as your, as your, as your stance on stuff, which is, which is what more people need to do. We need more people who are saying, well, I don't know, but we, but here's a, some ideas. I guess the best way to put it. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, that, that's something I've never really understood. It's kind of where Brad said how he likes to write about a bunch of different subjects. I've never kind of understood the idea that. Well, if you write about UFOs, you can't write about Bigfoot. Or if you write about ghosts, you can't write about um, conspiracies because, well, you're the ghost guy or you're the cattle mutilation person or that's you're the person who deals with alien implants. And now you write one about crop circles. Well, what's the connection? Well, there is no connection, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that's sort of um, one of the problems with the subject the paranormal subject in general, that it kind of pigeonholes or tries to pigeonhole the people in the subject and, um, you know, the pressures on um, to follow this belief system or that belief system. Um, you know, again, I've been at conferences where I've seen people who I know disagree with one of the particular speakers and then they're dealing with them later and they don't want to talk about the fact that they disagree with them because they want to kind of get in with them, you know, and um, maybe do some work for them or whatever, you know, something's their advantage. Yeah. But to me, that's like kissing ass. I mean, you know, I haven't seen Stan Friedman for years, but we differ massively on Roswell. Last time we met in Canada, we hung out and had pizza for lunch, you know. <laughs> yes. that, 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 that's how it should be. You know, you shouldn't be frightened or afraid to admit that you differ on stuff. You know, if you can't sort of sit opposite someone and admit you differ from them in terms of what they believe or you worry about admitting it, well, there's something wrong. You know, I mean, somebody said to me, Nick, you know, I appreciate what you said about the men in black, but I think your theory is full of shit. You know, I think, well, that, that's what it's about. That's, we should debate it. You know, I'm not going to stand there with my right, arms folded right. all defensive and say, no, I'm right. I, it's like I'm honest enough to admit when it's things like the men in black, Roswell, uh, alien abductions, we really don't know what the truth is. And to sort of say it's definitely this and to not want to rock the boat with the community because you want to get on in the community, well, you know, that's to me that's pretty pathetic. Well, the community, if we're going to talk about UFOs, I mean, there's definitely, I feel like there's a sort of a problem with the community right now where it's, I feel like it's just gone too far astray from the scientific aspect of things. Not necessarily that it would be a particularly helpful uh, juncture to figure this out scientifically, but it's impossible anymore. But I, 
I guess my bone of contention is that we're too uh, – we, I'm not really even a part of the UFO field. I'm, I'm like you, I guess you could say. I'm a Fordian as well uh, who has an interest in UFOs and an interest in cryptids and all this stuff. And I feel like ufology has gone way too far down the path of, of activism uh, and trying to, to get disclosure and everything. And we, we've talked about this in the past, and I feel like there, there really needs to be a, a turn back towards – uh, just some kind of scientific element of all of it, and, and trying to figure, just trying to figure it out beyond science, just trying to figure it out. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you can look at the UFO subject in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, before any of us today were doing research, and um, it, and then it was about grassroots research, getting out and actually doing in the field investigations which you don't see as much of today today it's very much a case of historically looking back at old reports and trying to figure them out interviewing old timers and pushing the government to release this or that which i'd be the first to admit i think there's space and a need for all of that but that's become more dominating than trying to solve what the ufo mystery is um, and I th- for me, disclosure, I think in theory it's a great premise, but I don't think it's got a cat in hell's chance of working because, you know, there's, there's, in my mind, somebody is hiding something. And I'm not even sure it's the elected governments. I, I think more along the lines of like a shadow government that even people in the official world very few are clear to know anything about. You know, I don't actually think the government, the bad guys in all this, I think it really is like some deep cover shadow group. But the point, the point I'm making is that whoever holds the cards, the idea that they're going to release all these cards just because UFO researchers say, we want the truth. I mean, that's, to me, that's just so naive to imagine that because you shout loud enough, they're going to say, oh, well, yeah, we'll reveal everything that we've kept hidden for 60, however many years. I just don't think it's going to happen. And if you look back historically at the subject, you know, um, Bill Moore was involved in an operation where, with intelligence guys, and they were going to use him as like a conduit to start to get the truth out. Linda Howe did as well. Then if you go back to the early 70s, there was Robert Emenegger who was involved in filmmaking and he spoke with government people and there was going to be supposedly a release of stuff then. In one of um, Donald Kehoe books in the 50s, he said he was told that you know, the, in a few months' time the government was going to release everything and it's never happened. And, but if, you, yeah. if you're not aware of it, you wouldn't necessarily know that this has gone on so many times before where the government's finally going to come clean. Um, and and it doesn't happen. So I I I'm, I I sort of I admire the sort of the gumption and the enthusiasm that people have to lobby and take like a political stance to get this stuff released. But I have kind of like a jaded view that it's too naive to imagine that it's going to happen just because you ask for it. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying, but. I don't think anybody should be shocked if asking lots of questions get you nowhere. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I admire the chutzpah. That was the <laughs> I was going yeah, to throw in chutzpah there when you were yeah, when yeah. you were talking about that. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. It's, but it's, I think it's like, to go back to what. But to go back to what you said about you know scientific stuff, I think yeah, that is missing now. Is that you can go back and find you know, somebody did a major field report on you know a landing case. 
and they were out there for a week or something. You really don't get as much of that anymore. It's just basically bickering and arguing on the internet about how many bodies were found at Roswell or whether this witness, you know, in a 60-year-old case is genuine or not. It's all important stuff, but it's kind of taken the lead over actually investigating the subject, you know. I've advocated for more statistical research, but I don't want to beat that drum because I do it every show. So, <laughs> But I'd like to see, again, I'll call for that on this episode as well, more statistical research. Uh, anyone who knows anything about statistics, reach out to me so maybe maybe I can try and get something going here um, in that regard. Now, our, our mutual friend Greg Bishop, he posted something a few days ago, and I, I talked to him about it uh, online as well. He, he sort of uh, presents the idea that, that, that this phenomenon, this UFO phenomenon, is, is incomprehensible. It's unknowable to us. But the government allows us to sort of speculate on it and uses that ignorance uh, to its own ends to sort of nudge us in different directions and stuff like that, which I think is a pretty interesting perspective and, and sort of uh, it's compelling in a lot of ways because there does seem to be an issue of, of is it even possible for us to understand all this? You know, it's uh, you, we know dogs exist, but you can't explain to a dog how, how the TV works. I mean, maybe we're stuck in that realm where we'll never really be able to get it all, all together, you know, in our human form, let's say. No, I, I agree with that. I think um, there's so many aspects of the UFO phenomenon and so many aspects that don't react and, a, and act in the way we would necessarily expect them to. Um, and there are certain facets of the subject that are kind of weird. I mean, for example, if you take Whitley Strieber's stuff, you know, um, I think when Communion came out, a lot of people thought this was just going to be like a major well-known writer talking about how he's abducted by aliens. But to me, at least, to, to Strieber's credit, and I, I think it is to his credit, his book was very different. You know, he said, well, I'm not even sure they are aliens. He said they seem to have connections with the afterlife. They seem to know something about death and the soul and all sorts of weird stuff and so you know if there are people in governments that know more than we do and i'm sure they do there's this sort of tendency to think that because it's the government they know everything i suspect that there are a lot of people in government or the intelligence communities or the military that have you know they've got massive amounts of more material than we do maybe they do have bodies and wreckage i don't know but what i would say is that I'd be very surprised if they got all the answers. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason for all this silence is because maybe they found out some of this weirder stuff, like the Strieber type things, and they just don't know what to do with it. They just don't know how to tell people that it's not just nuts and bolts scientists, that there are these other aspects to it. And I actually think that's probably one of the main reasons why the information hasn't been released. If it was just nuts and bolts, ships occasionally crashed, and okay, we've got 20 bodies stored away, and now we're going to tell you. I actually think that probably or possibly would have been released. But it's like, how do you tell people that these things have a knowledge of the human soul or the afterlife, or they can manipulate reality and, you know, who knows what? And, and maybe yeah. they really don't even understand what they are. Maybe they, just because you've got a bunch of bodies, it doesn't really tell you, are they biological robots made by us in the future and sent back? Are they interdimensional? Are they extraterrestrial? Are they something else? 
So I think, you know, yeah. having a lot of material doesn't really necessarily mean you've got a lot of answers. And plus, this kind of connects to uh, pyramids in the Pentagon, in a way. Uh, I, I said this to Greg when we were talking about it. There's also the possibility that the government may know some things, but the Vatican knows other stuff, and the Russians know some stuff, and the Chinese know some stuff, and the Knights Templar knew some stuff, and, and various, you know, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is all these different, there may be a ton of knowledge out there, but it's all being held in, in by smaller pockets or groups of people who aren't willing to share all this. It would be remarkable to know that <laughs> we could have had this all figured out a long time ago if everyone just kind of sat down at the table together and, and showed their cards. Well, yeah, but I think that's sort of, you know, human nature. Everybody wants to be the first with the most in turn that in that includes information as well. And uh, I mean, you mentioned the pyramids of the Pentagon. That, you know, the book I wrote about official interest in ancient mysteries. Again, it's clear from the files that have been released, like the CIA files on Noah's Ark, that they have an interest in these subjects. But again, there's no hard evidence to suggest they're sitting on 100% of the answers. I think they have a lot of suspicions that maybe there were civilizations that came before ours or that there was an extraterrestrial presence, or somebody developed advanced technology thousands of years ago, and then it was lost. Um, they suspect all this, but they don't have the hard answers. And, you know, I think that's one of the things people often forget, is that governments can have a lot of information, or anybody can have a lot of information, but it doesn't mean you've got a lot of answers and clues to what really lies at the heart of it. And, um, and I think that gives when we think that is the case, it sort of creates a, a false image of, of what the reality is. You know, I'd be very surprised if there weren't people in the Pentagon who sit around and, you know, in their free time of a lunch saying, what do you really think happened at Roswell? Because they don't know, you know. They're mm. out of the loop. Yeah. And, and even somebody who is in the loop, they may think, you know, they, you may find there are conversations hypothetically going on well, could these be biological robots? You know, are they built by us in the future? Or are they crypto-terrestrials? Or are they, are they designed to be able to jump dimensions? You know, just because you've got this 60-year-old body in formaldehyde in an old cylinder, you know, it doesn't really tell you anything other than you've got a moldy old body in a cylinder. <laughs> exactly. Well, you also, you touched on something that I had crossed my mind uh for a future uh, conversation with a guest who wrote about the afterlife. And that, that is, uh, and, and this came up with Rosemary Ellen Galley a long time ago when I talked to her, that I think knowledge of the afterlife, if they can prove it, if they, if they know it, let's say, let's say the government knows there is an afterlife, that's, I, I think you hit the nail on the head in a big way, that that, that could really be the true sticking point of all this. They, they don't want us to know that because that would really cause that would cause more problems than us knowing that UFOs are real, that aliens are real, because it would strip away sort of uh, the consequences of life in a way. Well, I think one of the most important things is you know when you look at all these, uh, and there are a lot of abduction stories where people have said they felt their soul was transferred out of the body, and you know that the aliens predicted somebody's death, and and then there were stories about people seeing the the grazing conjunction with like a spirit form of a dead relative you know my my view is that if this is all true and that there are a lot of stories that take it down that path then maybe somebody has discovered that the afterlife isn't this sort of simplistic heaven and hell 
you know, where one right. place is full of cloud and harps and angels and the other place is underground. It's like a red-hot cave and, you know, everywhere's on fire and there's this guy with horns and a pitchfork. You know, that's the traditional imagery that has been made, you know, has been dumbed down in terms of Christianity. You know, it's that idea that there are these two places. Now, a lot mm. of other cultures have an idea, you know, there is like a duality of places in the afterlife. Others believe there's one. You know, other, place, other religions believe in reincarnation. They clearly can't all be right. You know, I sometimes wonder if somebody's found the answer and the reason they're not revealing the truth about the UFO subject is because it would get into these other realms and right. it might blow all the traditional imagery of what the afterlife is out of the window and then you would have major religions would collapse because, not because they'd lied, but because the stories have been so distorted over time and dumbed down to be, you know, another dimensional realm becomes just a, a, a burning hot cave with this guy on the horn, you know. And so I think hmm. that may have something to do with it, that it could alter our perception on religion. And religion, you know, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea that something survives bodily death, because I've had a couple of weird experiences. Um, but... I don't have any love at all for organized religion because organized religion is about controlling people through fear and guilt and, and it's less about what happens when we die. And, hmm. and, you know, religion is part of the status quo when people in power don't want the status quo challenged and maybe the UFO subject has the ability to challenge it so the view is let's just, let's just hide it, it's too difficult to deal with. Right, exactly. You hit the nail with that. Uh, you know, it keeps them in, in line and people under, you know, fear. And like I said, if they if they found out that the afterlife wasn't this heaven and hell situation, that, yeah. you know, maybe they don't even know that what happens after you die, but this, if something does happen, who knows what yeah. people would do? They might start robbing banks. They might start, you know, killing their ex-wives. They might start, who knows? You know what I mean? We're already seeing that kind of crazy stuff now. Can you imagine if, if people realize that that there were no... That there were no consequences. If they thought there were no consequences, it would be it would be a bad scene. Well, yeah, I mean that that's one of the important issues. I mean, for millions of people, you know, most of us don't rob banks because we know it's wrong to rob banks. You know, but there are certain right. people who who possibly live in fear that if they do this or do that, they're going to go to hell. And then if they find, well, there is no hell. There's just some other realm that could be explained by science. Maybe they're like. What does it matter if I, you know, rob a bank and spend the next 80 years living it up if there's going to be not a consequence? Exactly. That's how some people would look at it, I think. It's a strange situation. Now, what do you make uh, – this is something that's kind of crossed my mind a lot, too. Uh, what do you – because you're a good student of the history of all this. What do you make of the, the 70s and the rise of the of this sort of peripheral phenomena to UFOs? Because we saw sort of – it was happening in the past, but it really sort of burst into the into the minds of people looking at the uh, the unknown. Uh, you know, things like crop circles, cattle mutilations, abductions—they all seem to bloom in uh, in that '70s period. Uh, what do you make of that, and, and where do you think that comes from? Well, I mean, you can look at it from a couple of angles. I mean, if we've got sort of literal extraterrestrials or something visiting us, then you could make an argument, if it's all just nuts and bolts and nothing else, that their project was upgraded and they took it to the next step of, you know, making tentative 
visits and flyovers in the 40s and 50s and then abducting a few people in the 60s like Betty and Barney Hill and then taking even further in the 70s, taking more and more people, then sampling the animal kingdom, leaving mm. markings on the ground and seeing how people interpret it and talk about it. You could look at it like that. Or you could look at it from the perspective that the phenomena itself is constantly changing to sort of suit the people of the era or to confuse us by, you know, presenting itself as something that it isn't. Um, or, you know, maybe there are multiple phenomena existing now that were before there weren't. But, I mean, the only thing we can say for sure is that the, the UFO phenomenon has changed even since the days of Kenneth Arnold back in 47. You know, back then it was a lot of reports of like flying saucers or sort of vaguely triangular wedge-shaped objects flying around, sometimes in squadrons, very often alone. Then in the 50s, suddenly you had the Space Brothers. Then you had the French wave of these little dwarfs in 54. Um, soil sampling aliens, landing cases. Then kind of abduction starting in the 60s when the Space Brothers yeah. were sort of on the way out. 70s, like you said, abductions, cattle mutes. It's, it's, and then black triangles, and crop circles. It's like the phenomenon itself is changing. That's why I think that it's not the simplistic nuts and bolts thing. I think a lot of these events and phenomena are changing. I, I think it's kind of camouflaging its real identity in a way that is acceptable to the people of that era, and we fall for the, the camouflage. Um, now, what lies behind it and why it feels the need to change its appearance or change its way it interacts with us, I don't know. But, you know, I'm not entirely sure it's a positive thing. I think it could be, from our perspective, a very negative, sinister thing. I mean, people, after people say, say to me, oh, the aliens, you know, they're here to save us and help us, and I have to look around and say, well, what the hell have they done to help and save us? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you look at, I mean, a lot of people's health is not in the greatest state today. You know, I mean, you look at heart disease, diabetes in kids is rampant. You know, overpopulation. They're talking now about water, you know, becoming a commodity in, you know, in the next few years. Um, oh, rainforest, global warming, polar ice caps, you know, um, all these issues. I don't see anybody from anywhere else doing anything to fix this. What I see is a phenomenon that kind of skulks around a lot and... Um, you know, if the abduction stories are real, abducts people for whatever purpose. Now, I don't want to paint it all from a darkness perspective because there are a lot of people who've had very positive experiences. So I think there's, you know, I won't say there's good and bad. That, again, that's too simplistic. But the phenomena, I think, interacts in a way that maybe you want it to interact with or you expect it. You know, a person who's of a weak character might get sort of negative entities attached to them and attacked by them. That's why I think sometimes people who get involved in paranormal stuff and Ouija boards, things start to go bad in their life. Not because they're necessarily using a Ouija board, but they're of a weak-willed character and some of these kind of like negative paranormal things, which I do believe are real, get their grips into people who don't have the sort of strength of character to fight it off. And then they start to, you know, they get sick, they get ill, they get paranoid, things start to go wrong. Yeah. And it's like a negative backlash, as it, 
become known or psychic backlash and and I think that's with the phenomenon it's, it's constantly changing according to our needs beliefs or perceptions but it, the important thing is I think it's a real phenomena from somewhere else it's definitively alien but whether that means extraterrestrial like I said or interdimensional I'm, I'm sort of open-minded on all that right like a non-human intelligence yeah something um, non-human but you know I don't feel any need it wouldn't I wouldn't be disappointed if it wasn't extraterrestrial you know I'd be just as fascinated right. if it proved to be like a coexisting dimension or whatever hmm now, what do you make uh, – we're, we're closing in towards the end of the program, so I'll try and uh, make this brief. And We, we can always trickle over here uh, and, and unfortunately lose the live audience, but uh, I won't keep you too much longer. But, but I guess this speaks to kind of what we were talking a little bit about the conspiracy thing where it's like we're in this sort of 15-year nebulous period where it's hard to really know what's going on because you're living in the now. But we've talked about how the paranormal has evolved and changed over the years. I guess, how do you think it's presenting itself now? I mean, what are we seeing now that that maybe we haven't quite picked up on yet? I mean, are you seeing like the black-eyed kids sort of emerge and shadow people yeah. have kind of come into the come into the fore in the last uh, you know decade or so? But I mean, do you see anything else that maybe we haven't picked up on yet or or uh, haven't considered that that's that may be the new face of the paranormal that we don't know yet? Well, I mean. One of the things I would say is because I've written a few books on the men in black and some of these shadow people, like the, the ones called the hat man, you know, they, they kind of look vaguely like the men in black. I actually do get quite a few um, sort of shadow people. And, you know, there's the, then you have these sort of other categories like the grinning man and the slender man, you know, hmm. and they're all kind of vaguely MIB sort of prototypes, if you like. And I definitely get a lot of those types of reports and that's clearly on the rise in the same way that the black eyed children reports are um a lot of the other stuff i have to say though has sort of gone by the wayside i mean even abduction reports you don't seem to get anywhere near as many as those today um you know it's like when did the last abduction book was when was the last abduction book published you know maybe a couple of books but back in the 80s and 90s they were all over the place you know um yeah and a lot of the classic cases are gone and um i actually really don't see anything personally other than maybe that's just because people who've got something to say about something they've experienced would, would approach someone who's they know done work in that field perhaps that's why you know i'm not i get a lot of the hat man and grinning man type stuff but i don't get ghost reports but i think the phenomenon has definitely changed what i would say i think the major difference with the UFO phenomenon is that it doesn't seem to be interacting with us at the personal level that it seemed to do in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s when the phenomenon, you know, people would have personal experiences, there would be abductions, contactee cases and um, for me at least, as, as far as the reports I get and even reading the magazines and online, there don't, doesn't seem to be as many of those sort of personal face-to-face meaningful interactions it's more detached i think today and certainly in the last 10 years yeah yeah absolutely i want to talk to you more about that but we've got a minute left so let me thank uh the live listeners for tuning in there'll be a little bit of a trickle over here with nick if he'll allow me just to talk to him for a little bit longer and explore some of this stuff yeah sure and uh, <laughs> thank you nick i didn't mean to put you on the spot there <laughs> um 
I want to thank all the folks who tuned in. I want to thank Brad Steiger for joining us in the first hour. It's been an amazing conversation. It's been an amazing evening. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I really did enjoy it quite a bit. I want to make sure to plug, once again, the zombie book, The Encyclopedia of the Living Dead. That's by Nick and Brad, and it comes out in September. But you can pre-order it right now, folks, so pick that up. Once again, thank you to all the live listeners for tuning in. Check out uh, the podcast for more from us, and have a good night, folks. Okay, now the live listeners have gone. The follow-up to that, uh, what you were talking about there, Nick, is it's interesting in a way, because you've written the book about the contactees, they they talked about how they were in contact with Space Brothers and stuff like that. Then it kind of died out. But I don't know what you see on Facebook, but I I see a lot of strange people <laughs> that that are that that say they're hybrids. It seems like there's this sort of rise in, in in people who sort of allege that they're either in contact with aliens or they're half alien or part alien or something like that. It's, it's pretty remarkable in a way. I guess the way perceptions have changed, people aren't afraid to say they are, and 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 people believe it. I guess it's it's sort of a weird going on, you know. I don't know what to make of that. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's good. I think the one good thing is that people are certainly far more open about speaking about these sort of things today than they were, you know, a long time ago. I mean, back in the fifties, it actually wasn't uncommon at all if somebody saw a UFO to talk about it, but. You know, the number of people who who may have been abducted, had abduction experiences, say, in the 60s. You know, everybody thinks of Betty and Barney Hill or the Herbert Shermer case. They're the main ones. There could have been hundreds. There could be as many as in the 70s, 80s. But maybe people were just like, well, there's no way I can talk about that until a few more reports right. started to trickle through. And then so people started talking more. You know, it's kind of like when one person does something, then others follow because nobody wants to be the first, you know. Um, yeah. And I think maybe that's why people are be, becoming more open, at least, about speaking about, you know, they think they're a hybrid or they think this, because the you haven't got the laughter factor. I mean, that sort of comes back to the television thing. Although a lot of these shows are dumbed down, the important thing is that the networks put shows on because they know they're popular. I mean, a few years ago, 20 years ago, you would get, like, Unsolved Mysteries or whatever those shows were, you know, um, Strange yeah. Mystery or whatever. Um, and and that would be it. There, was, there wasn't really much of a market for them. Now there is. So that that's a good thing, even though there are negative aspects to it. And I think that's the same with the witnesses that they're, or the experiences, they're coming forward and they're saying A, B, and C because... Other people are as well, and they feel comfortable. And so that in itself, I think, is a good thing, obviously. Yeah. It's certainly changed even in the last, like, 10 years since I've been looking at all this. Like I said before, no one, was, no one really in the mainstream talked about Bigfoot at all. It was really – it would, it would perk up your ears if you were watching TV and you heard them mention Bigfoot. Now it's like they talk about it all the time. So you wonder what, what the hell's going on with all this as people get more comfortable with it. You know, well, maybe there'll be a sea think- change in perception. Yeah, people do get more comfortable with it, and then the media picks up on it because they can make money from it. Then the newspapers, magazines pick up, and it becomes more part of popular culture with T-shirts and you know stickers for the car or whatever. And um, but the, you know things come in waves, and um, you know next year it's like the whole zombie thing. You know, I'm, I think probably five years from now the zombie craze will be gone. 
kind of like we had the other whole twilight and vampires and werewolf things you know that was really big a few years ago now granted the zombie thing has gone way beyond all of that in terms of interest but i would yeah. be surprised you know it, the zombie thing is kind of like beatlemania you know what i mean well those <laughs> beatlemania today don't exist and i think that's that's kind of like with bigfoot it's bigfoot's time <laughs> right now and then it'll go back to the hardcore researchers, you know, and the lectures and and books and so on, but it won't have that sort of pride of place on all the, you know, the whatever this channel or that channel, you know. Well, I was thinking about what we were talking about just now about where where where's the new phenomena? I guess the air booms. That's kind of another thing that kind of came <laughs> along uh, in the last few years. But it's interesting. You see, you see these old stories die out like the spontaneous human combustion, Bermuda Triangle. No one even talks about those anymore. So there's kind of a void here for, for weird stories. Well, well, I, think, are, I think you wrote I about mean, the Chupacabras. It, it yeah. almost filled that vacuum in a way in mutated. In <laughs> that you're right. But I'm, I think certainly stuff like, like I mentioned, like the Hat Man, the Slender Man, and definitely the Black Eyed Children, I think that, I mean, like David Weatherly's books are really good, and David gets cases all the time, you know, and uh, so this is clearly a big thing. I think the major issue is that the mainstream media hasn't really picked up on the black-eyed children thing as such, but I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't become, you know, like the next big thing, in the same way that crop circles were once, and now it's, oh, yeah, it's the summer in England, and there's going to be, you know, five or six new formations, and and that sort of lost its mystique. But you're right, I don't really see too much new, you know, like a new phenomenon coming along, really, other than uh, than the black-eyed children. I think that's sort of really the biggest noticeable thing. Um, and maybe a lot of the stuff Linda Godfrey does, like the werewolf and these upright dogmen things, those reports seem to be on the rise, I think, as well. Or at least people are talking about them more. Maybe it's a bit of the two. And if you look at it from that perspective, if you sort of take a broader picture of it all, if it is all the same bullion base, it makes you wonder where this is going in the sense that they've now uh, ditched the craft. <laughs> it seems like UFO <laughs> reports are down, but we're dealing with, with presences on the planet. Uh, we don't see where they come from. That's kind no, of you, no, that's actually a very good point because you know back in the 50s and 60s, when people saw weird creatures looking like aliens, they would always, well, I wouldn't say always, but very often be associated with the craft, specifically like the Space Brothers. They would come out of like a gleaming saucer in the desert, Betty and Barney Hill. You know, it's even with abductions today. Really, the witnesses, if you think that they hardly ever report a UFO, they report being taken from the car or taken from the bed, and they're in a room. But you, you know, most of the reports, you know, ask them to describe the shape of the craft they were in, well, they don't really know because they're just in the room, on the table, and the next they're back in the bed or back in the car. So even there you have the detachment from the craft that you had, where you had the connection in the past. And But, yeah, I mean, a lot of these cases today with black-eyed children, the Grinning Man, Hat Man, um, Linda Godfrey stuff, um, just weird, or weird humanoids in general, they're just, they're, they're there, and then they're not there. Um and even the ones that look like the men in black, you know, these fedora-type characters that sort of the next generation of MIB, the more paranormal-type ones, well, even very often they're not even seen 
you know, in connection with a craft or anything. So you're right, there's a lot of humanoid-type reports that we perceive as being linked to UFOs, but where today we actually don't see a UFO. Well, you've written a lot about, this connects to all that, in the sense, uh, you've written a lot about the MIBs. Are we still seeing that kind of stuff happen? And, and if so, uh, I guess, you know, encounters with strange men in black <laughs> is the best way to put it. Uh, are, are these things still happening? And, and if so, uh, is there any sort of through line to these, uh, why they're happening now? Because previously it was like they were warning people away from looking at stuff, and now you wonder uh, if, if, it's, if, they're, if they have a different motivation uh, when they appear, if they are appearing. So it's like a double, double question there on you. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I'm working on a third book on the Men in Black right, right now, which is almost finished. Mm. Um, Paul Kimball's company, Red Star Books, they're going to publish it. And um, I get nice. I get dozens. You know, you, it, it's kind of like when you write, it's like you, I guess, you know, when you do your show, you get feedback from people. It's the same with when I write books. And if you write a book on a specific topic like the Men in Black and people have had experiences and they want to track someone down who they can talk to, you know, I, that's why I get, like, I would say I probably get 50 or 60 reports every year, at least. Wow. Maybe more. And many of those reports aren't historical. You know, some of them are where somebody will say, you know, my grandfather always used to tell this story at the family, that kind of thing. But, I mean, the new book I'm working on, I mean, there are reports there from 2013 seeing, you know, this sort of pale-faced, skinny guy with a black suit and a fedora. And... 1950s cars in 2012. I get reports like that all the time. Now, what I would say is that, you know, people think of the men in black, they think, like I said earlier, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, the government angle. I would say a good 95, 96, 97% probably of, I mean, that's oh, wow. generalized, but it's way up there, yeah. of the reports yeah. I get the men in black and nothing to do with government stuff. They're where people have seen a UFO and they've had the visit and they're clearly something stranger, or where there hasn't even been a UFO angle, but the person's been dabbling in the occult. I've got reports where people have been using Ouija boards um, and they've got visitations from the men in black. I've got reports where people um, were taking LSD and trying to open portals and doorways and then the MIB actually came through this sort of portal. Um, so, in oh, other weird. words, yeah, the MIB don't just turn up in relation to UFOs. They seem to be tied to a wide range of paranormal phenomena, and, and many of the reports I get, um, you know, they are far more sinister and, and occult-based and occult-driven than they are UFO-based. Um, and but the the reports I get today, they're they look just like they did in the sort of the Keel books, you know, Mothman prophecies, like sort of little emaciated, skinny, anorexic, anemic guys in suits that don't fit them right and hats and cars that are sort of 40 years out of their time, you know, so it's really, really weird. <laughs> Very strange. And, and when, these, when they get conjured like that, uh, or even when they... Like you're saying that they don't have anything to do with the government. What, what are they? What are they doing then? Do they say anything? Do they sort of convey any sort of reasoning why they cross paths with the people who who see them? Do they, the MIB say anything? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, not really. I mean, most of it is sort of warning people 
to keep away from this or to keep away from that or sort of um, threatening. There are other cases which even more sinister, I've got quite a few of these, where people have been dabbling in the occult and the MIB have turned up and actually tried to kind of entice them to do it more as if, you know, it oh, was going to help the MIB to get their grips into the people, um, you know, to sort of help them on their way sort of thing. Um, yeah. But there's, I mean, the reports I get are sort of, they're almost like chilling, you know, the best way to chillingly weird in the sense that, hmm. that they come across as like, uh, you can only describe it as like evil, like a, like a, if you imagine a, an evil energy sort of turned into a human form. Um, and a lot of them don't, this seems to sound really strange, but it's like they don't even feel like they're self-aware. You know, people have said the MIB kind of don't seem like self-aware entities, as if they're almost like constructed by something, like a, you know, like a template to go out that does its job and then it fades out into nothing again. Um so there's a lot of weird stuff connected to them that goes, you know, far back, far away from the whole government angle. And I think when that happens, you know, and I get some reports of people who don't know each other, then that really makes me go down the path that they're not government agents. And it's not the simplistic approach of the aliens are just sending out agents to silence us. There's, you know, when you find, like I said, LSD and Ouija boards and... A lot of people who've had, um, this gets into interesting areas, a lot of people I've interviewed and have contacted me who've had MIB experiences have been Wiccans. Um, hmm. You know, they've, they're practicing Wiccans, uh, Wiccan priestesses and things like that. And they've yeah. been visited and threatened. Um, you know, or maybe they've opened a door and something's come through and got its grips into them. Because a lot of people do think the MIB kind of drain them of energy they're almost like a psychic vampire maybe that's part of it you know you open the door and you let these things in and you're you're basically dinner you know in a in a strange yeah. way so. see that's weird because it's almost it's a difficult the, the, the issue in a lot of ways with the paranormal is an issue of language we don't really have the words to express mm. uh what we're dealing with and the MIB sounds like that's definitely a, a, a tricky subject because when you hear MIB, people immediately assume government agents and stuff like that. But it clearly sounds like we're dealing with something way beyond that at this point. Oh, so yeah. I don't I mean, know what it, to make of it. No, I mean, I, the pro, one of the big problems is and what makes it confusing is I don't think it's just one thing. I think if you go back hmm. to the 50s and the 40s, um, when we know that government agencies did send people out to interview UFO witnesses. Now, of course, the, the clothes that the guys wore back then were black suits and fedoras, you know, nothing to do with many yeah. black necessarily, but that, that was the fashion. So I think some cases that have become sort of classed in legend as, oh, that was a man in black case, were actually just visits from real government people who kind of dressed, you know, in that sort of style. And I think some cases maybe where the government uh, agencies have, if you like, camouflaged or mimicked the weirder MIB who they realize exist, but they mimic them to cover their own tracks. You know, there are actually a number of indications that the government knows these weirder MIB exist. 
and they may have used their motif to, hey, you know, if we imitate them, that's going to act as a good cover, even if we're not really sure what they are. So yeah. you've got those two categories of government angles. Then you've got sort of these clearly paranormal MIB that pop up, you know, as I said, in, in occult stuff and UFO stuff. Um, now, whether they're sort of tulpers, whether they're time travelers, they're occult, I, I don't know. But they're not just, there's no way they're government people. And I, I don't think it's as simple either as they're, you know, some sort of hybrid alien, because you wouldn't then have the crossover with things like Wiccan teachings and the occult and, and whatever. So I, I'm more inclined to think that however we define what the occult is, I think <clears throat> the MIB have their origins in that realm. And, and I think they turn up sometimes when people are dabbling in things that maybe they shouldn't dabble in, or it's not necessarily they shouldn't, but if they've not got a good hold on it where they remain in control, that's when problems start and the MIB come through. Like what happened with Albert Bender, that's a classic example of somebody who went looking for something and it got its grips into him and he was a weak person and before it long his health, mental and physical health was suffering and he had to back away from it forever, you know. So you get close encounters of the fatal kind. That's coming, uh, let me see where the... That'll be June. In front of me here. Yeah, that's yeah, June. Okay, there it is. Then yeah. the zombie book in September, providing the zombie apocalypse doesn't happen first, of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. And, um, and I'm wrapping up at some point that book with Paul, um, the um, the new Men in Black book. So, but that will just come out whenever it comes out, I guess. Yeah. It's this new one, the uh, the the Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. That sounds spooky. I'll have to talk to you later about that. Uh, once yeah, well, I'll make sure cause... you get a copy. But yeah, it deals with sort of researchers who've died of sudden heart attacks or alleged suicides that may not have been suicides, and um, and and legitimate cases of murder. Um, you know, you can find a lot of stories along those lines. And I mean, I was sort of limited on the word counts. Um, with this particular book, I was sort of limited up to 65,000 words. But, I mean, I could have made that book probably 95,000. There were so many really, in some cases, obscure reports of UFO research in the 50s. Not well-known ones, but sort of just vanishing, just not coming home again. Um, and others um, where the, the suicide was so suspicious that, you know, only a fool would, would think it really was a suicide. Mm-hmm. The one that always sort of uh, just uh, vexes me is is the, the downfall of James E. McDonald. That one always kind of stood mm. out to me. Uh, even if he was driven to suicide by his own hand, uh, he certainly seemed like he was under the thumb of a lot of pressure from from people who wanted to make his life miserable. So uh, very oh, uh, very sad kind of events there. Kind of Maurice Jessup, sort of a very similar one as well you know, whether everything seemed to spiral out of control and, um, you know, they were sort of walking on the edge of a cliff all the time and then things got too much. But you kind of sort of see these hidden forces and hands and players behind the scenes, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's, it's in, in a modern way, uh, we don't see this too often anymore nowadays, or at least uh, suspicious deaths. We see them in some, some of these, like, uh, political activist-type people, uh, uh-huh. Reporters end up dying in odd ways, but uh, it, you can probably speak to this. Uh, just 
it's it's an odd sort of feeling because uh, I've interviewed probably at least a hundred people, probably one hundred fifty people, mm-hmm. and 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 we've lost like four or five, six of of, of our previous guests to uh, to death. So it's it's an odd sort of feeling when you're in this field for a long time. Uh, you make friends and previous guests or people you talk to, they're gone. And it's like, whoa, this is kind of drives it all home that, uh, you know. Because, yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> I think we need to all sort of, I mean, one of the things I point out in the book is that ufologists are people first and people, without being depressive, we're all on a time limit, you know what I mean? And hopefully it's a yeah. long time limit and some people, unfortunately, it isn't. But, you know, most UFO researchers who die, die because... In the same way that a bus driver dies or a car mechanic dies, you know, they just die. Yeah. But in saying that, there are, you know, there is a significant number of, of weird and suspicious deaths in ufology that aren't just, you know, this, they die because he was old, you know, there's, there's something more to it. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, back in the day. Um, okay, so the new book comes out uh, in June, and then you got also the... Uh, well, how about this? Has there ever been a book you haven't written yet that you've always kind of wanted to tackle? I know you don't do ghosts. Yeah. Well, no, I don't really. Right? Into... Not... No, I mean, <laughs> the only reason I don't is because it just, all that kind of stuff doesn't really interest me that much, sort of ghosts and haunted houses. I just don't get excited by it. Not that I don't necessarily believe there's anything to it. I do think there's something to it. But it just doesn't excite me or enthuse me enough to sort of get involved. But, um, I wouldn't mind sort of doing, um, did you say a book that I haven't written? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Or a topic um, that's always sort of been, you know, that you're always kind of like, well, I'll get to that, you know, I'll get to that yeah. at some point, and then it hasn't, hasn't quite, uh, you don't have to give it away here, but. <laughs> no, I'm actually just trying to think, <laughs> I'm trying to think of one, but. Um, well, you're so prolific that you probably, that probably never happens, because you're just like, okay, that'll be the next one I write, so. Well, I, I guess there are kind of offshoots of things, you know, that I, I could sort of get um, more involved in. I mean, I mean, kind of. I mean, I'm very interested in that sort of um, afterlife angle of of the abduction reports. I think that's sort of a that would probably make for a, mm. you know, kind of an interesting book. Um, there's certainly enough material, um, and you know, maybe I, w- I wouldn't mind doing. Uh, I mean, a specific case doesn't spring to mind, but I wouldn't mind doing a book like on a, a cryptozoology book that just focuses on one case. You know, for example, like yeah. Monster Files and a lot of the other ones I've done. It's sort of a lot of road trips where I've gone investigating different things and um, it covers everything from Bigfoot to lake monsters to whales, whatever. I wouldn't mind doing, you know, sort of kind of like Keel did with the Mothman Prophecies, an entire book on one weird animal or one mystery. Do you know what I mean? that kind of thing, yeah, rather yeah. than a chapter on this or a chapter on that, um, which is kind of like, you know, Pyramids in the Pentagon or the whatever. That's like a chapter on Noah's Ark, a chapter on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I wouldn't mind doing like a full-length book that's just on, you know, the the creature of whatever lake or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, I got one more here for you that, I, that crossed my mind. Uh, and I know you probably tackled this in Monster Files, but... It's always sort of intrigued me because I've heard these rumors about the government uh, after Mount St. Helens erupted, the government went in and, like, picked up a bunch of Bigfoot bodies and got rid of them. Um, I guess the the over and, – and I think I posed this to Lauren Coleman once. Uh, you know, what does the government know about Bigfoot? Do you think the government knows what's going on? And, and he sort of explained to me that, you know, even if they have satellites, like, looking down, that 
the people who are looking for terrorists coming into America, they've already sort of been trained to disregard a, a Bigfoot crossing the border or something like that. But what do, you, what do you think the government really knows about Bigfoot? And if it knows much about him or it, uh, why do you think they don't want to tell us about it? Well, again, it's like with the UFO subject. There are good indications for people who come forward that I wouldn't say the government necessarily knows, but agencies may yeah. know something or, or do know something. But I think they're baffled by it because they don't understand it. Again, because they, I think they know it's not like just a North American equivalent of a gorilla or an orangutan. Hmm. And they've got a lot of data. They may have imagery and, you know, thermal imagery, all sorts of stuff. Maybe they've even got bodies. Um, but I think they realize that there's a bigger story which they haven't fully grasped and they don't really know how to tell the story because it could be possibly, you know, unsettling overtones if there is something running around the U.S. that it would be fantastic enough if it was just a large ape. But if it's something weirder, I think, again, it's, well, unless we know the answers and we don't, let's just not comment on it. But there are a lot of stories um, of military people who've said, you know, not just the Mount St. Helens story, but have talked about government files on the subject, which seem to sort of tie in with all the weird stuff. I mean, Stan Gordon, um, who wrote the book Silent Invasion, which is a really good book about yeah. a Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot wave in the 70s, Stan actually got visited by government representatives who wanted them, wanted him to keep them informed. Now, I don't think it's coincidence that they approached Stan, somebody who was looking into the UFO and the weird phenomena angle of Bigfoot. You know, they weren't knocking on every Bigfoot researcher's door in the country. It was the people who made these weirder connections. And I think that's an important sort of pointer that's where the government's coming from. They've they've got these weird reports, but it's like with UFOs. It's what the hell are we going to do when we don't really understand it in the first place anyway? That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, I really do appreciate you giving us this extra time. I hadn't anticipated yeah, no that, but the conversation just kept growing uh, from from where we began. Uh, let me plug here the books, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, Suspicious Deaths, Mysterious Murders, and Bizarre Disappearances in UFO History. That will be coming at you in late June, folks. You can also pre-order that, as well as the zombie book, The Encyclopedia of the Living Dead, Nick Redford and Brad Steiger, our two guests here tonight. They've got a book coming out. They finally team up, and I'm sure they'll be doing the media round, so I'm kind of glad we uh Serendipitously, I didn't even know about this book uh, as I was putting together the show. I saw you just, just linked to it the other day on Facebook after we were setting this all up. So it's kind of cool that I managed to get you guys on together uh, yeah, before the wave well. will happen in the fall. And I really got to thank you. Uh, 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 just got to really thank you a lot, Nick, for this. Uh, you know, this was completely thrown together at the last minute, but I knew I wanted to come back from our little hiatus here with uh, the, the biggest bang for the buck, and I knew Nick Redfern was definitely uh, got to be a part of that. And so I really do thank you for, for jumping in at the last minute and uh, being a part of this, man. Oh, no problem at all, Tim. I know what it's like when, uh, you know, if a guest drops or you just haven't got a guest, you know, and you need someone. It's uh, You haven't got a show without the host or the guest or the audience. You know, you need all three. Well, to your credit, man, uh, the, the – uh, the impetus behind getting you on and getting Brad on was really uh, that I wanted to bring on some superstars here uh, because we're coming back from the break, and I wanted, like I said, to have the biggest bang for the buck. So 
we weren't in dire need of a guest. We were in dire need of a star, and I knew that uh, you were the right man for the job. Uh, let me just throw some plugs in here. Uh, what's your What's your preferred website that we send folks to? Uh, Nick Redfern Fortian, F O R T E A N, Nick Redfern Fortian dot blogspot dot com, or people can reach me at um, Facebook or Twitter. Just um, type it. There are a few Nick Redferns at Facebook, but type it in and scroll down, and you'll see me one of them. So. <laughs> exactly, folks. Yeah. So check that out, or just Google Nick Redfern. Uh, punch him in Amazon. You'll be able to get all the books as well. If you are just listening to us on Blog Talk and you have no idea how you found us or where you can find more. You can find more at banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Much like Nick, we are also on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Banal of America. You'll be able to find us. This program is free, my friends. You're not paying a dime for it, but it comes out of my pocket to pay the expenses. So if you could help us out, that would be huge. Please make a donation to PayPal. You can find the link at Banal of America. And if you don't trust PayPal... You can also mail us a donation to our P.O. box. The address can be found at Banal of America. As I said, this is our big return from the hiatus. We'll definitely have a new show for you next week, putting the final touches on that. It will probably be a live show. I can't guarantee that just yet. If not, we've got a couple of really good taped episodes already in the can and a few more that are going to be taped in the next couple of weeks. So awesome stuff coming down the line. Stay tuned to Banal of America and BOA on Facebook for more on that. Uh, Nick, if you're, yeah, you're still there. Thank you once yeah. again, Nick, for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Big thanks again to Brad Steiger for joining us in the first hour. And thanks to all the live listeners who tuned in. And of course, thanks to all the folks listening now here on the podcast. It's been uh, an awesome return. Looking forward to a ton more fantastic episodes coming from BOA Audio down the pike. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, my friends, this is Tim Banal. Thanking you for listening and signing off.